Hello, interwebs, and welcome to Close Up. I'm your co-host, Joe. And I'm Ryan. Time again for another Leisure List, the format where Ryan and I take you through all the entertainment we're watching, reading, playing, or otherwise consuming. As always, we'll try to refrain from major spoilers, seeing as you don't know what we'll be talking about. So we're going to zoom past our medium shot and get right into our close-up now. Because I have a longer list, as always, I'll just... I'll, I'll start it off. Mm-hmm. So the other day, I watched Mission Impossible, Dead Reckoning Part 1. Right up top, didn't love it as much as the last couple. Fallout was my favorite in the franchise up to that point. One of my all-time favorite action movies, period. This one was really good, but I just, I didn't connect to it as much as I wanted to. The, even though this is probably, interestingly enough, one of the most emotional character arcs for Ethan Hunt and his whole crew. Usually they don't get as emotional in these movies. They focus mostly on the on the stunt work and the and the plots, but there was actually a solid character building for the for the team this time around. Great introduction for Haley Atwell is Grace. She's this thief that uh, Ethan Hunt and his crew run into and kind of play a cat and mouse game with her as she's trying to steal the MacGuffin and they have to drag her in on the team to help them out. Um, but is, can they trust her or can they not? So the whole thing is a cat and mouse game to try and get this key that's going to unlock something that, well, nobody really knows what it unlocks, but everybody wants it because it's going to lead to something really powerful. The plot gets pretty convoluted, as per most Mission Impossible movies. A little hard to follow, so you got to really be paying attention, but... I was pretty invested. I was locked into this thing. Mm-hmm. Stunt work, amazing as expected. Highlight is the part they're always showing you in the trailers, the one where Tom Cruise rides the motorcycle off the cliff face and parachutes down. White knuckle action scene, fantastic. There's also one, well, actually, no, that's, a, that's kind of a spoiler, so I won't, I won't get into that. But there's another scene in the third act, incredible action scene inspired by a famous video game scene. I don't know that for certain, but I definitely got certain vibes watching it, I will say. Don't guess. Interesting. (laughs) Yeah, I'll tell you later if you want. So, yeah, all the performers were incredible in it. Tom Cruise is keeping the action genre alive, maybe keeping the box office alive at this point. Tenpole movies are failing left and right. Mm Mm-hmm. Tom Cruise movies are always pretty reliably entertaining, at the very least. Good. I mean, Spielberg did credit him with, quote-unquote, saving cinema when Top Gun Maverick came out, or saving movie theaters. Yeah. And I think this one's going to continue his trend, because this is what people are mm-hmm. looking for. They're looking for good, fun adventure movies. I, I don't want to say this one's light. It's definitely more serious than some of the other ones, but... That's good if you've been following the franchise up to this point, pays off some investment in the world. It's definitely a movie for Mission Impossible fans, but I think you'll be entertained if you're not as well. Just go in looking for cool stunts, cool action. Tom Cruise charm won't disappoint you. So some of the comedy was a little goofy at some parts. Didn't really land for me. Yeah. And some of the filmmaking was a little bit weird. A lot of Dutch angles and close-ups and Uh-oh. strange. <laughs> there were some interesting choices on the filmmaking front, but so on the whole, pretty darn good. I was 
I was definitely satisfied with it. It's grown on me the more I thought about it the last day. Mm. So a lot of Dutch angles, huh? <laughs> yeah, actually, it's it's strange. not. It's funny because you never bring up like not. I'm not saying you personally, but just people in general. You never really bring up Dutch angles until the film like makes it a point. Yes, like the only Dutch angle I can ever think of to bring up would be in Stranger Things season three, where the <laughs> one of the guys he kicks a chair and then it turns the angle into a Dutch angle. It's mm. almost like a comedic angle twist it's like really weird but i find it funny yeah um uh, the mission impossible movies i i'm gonna be very bold here i haven't seen any of them i probably saw the first one when i was a small boy and i don't know what it is i just never i just haven't been able to get into them yet and i did want to see this movie but i didn't want to do a disservice to myself and go see it without seeing the others not no, not knowing or not even thinking that I had to see the other ones to see this, but I, I just, it's important to me to see them in order just so I know the, uh, the character. Like I did that with the Daniel Craig, James Bond movies, and it really sucks that I didn't see the other movies before this one, because at the time that I would have gone see the movie at my regular theater that I go see it at my regular time, Tom Cruise showed up and said hi to everybody. Really? In the IMAX oh. theater with the director, too. Yeah, it was all over the internet. Like I was this like, week? are you... Yesterday. Oh, crap. I was like, are you fucking kidding me? And apparently... <laughs> That's ridiculous. That was like the fourth city he did in like that day. That's the rumor that he went around to different theaters. and. I just love how he was complaining about Toronto traffic just last week. <laughs> like pretty infamously on the news. <laughs> It's like he was hinting it's he was going to be here. Yeah, I saw that. Like, I saw that. I was talking with some buddies yesterday, and I was scrolling through Instagram, and I saw that. And I went, "Are you fucking kidding me? I could have seen your Tom theater in person." Uh, oh man. Well, oh, well, you know what? I'm writing that down day. into uh, <laughs> into Joe explains for before Dead Reckoning Part Two comes out. I'm going to explain Mission Impossible to you. Get get mm-hmm. the hype all built up and. Hopefully get you to binge watch one through seven. Yeah. The only reason I haven't seen them is because they're all on a streaming service that I don't have, which is Paramount Plus. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm going to do what Joe explains and then I'm going to loan you all my Blu-rays. So beautiful. That's right. cheaper. <laughs> yep. So what's your first one here? Okay. So my first one, I think I brought it up before. I don't know. So if this is a repeat, apologies to listeners, but it's worth being brought up again. Uh, mm-hmm. Excuse me, I'm a little indigested. Uh, Banshees of Inner Sheeran, one of the best films to be made last year. Really well acted. Colin Farrell is amazing. Um, my mind's blanking on the other actor. Uh, Cole, no, shoot. Oh, gosh. Oh, no. He's oh, in, no. he's always with, Stahl. he's in. Stall. He's in, he's in with Burgess with him as well. Brendan uh, Gleeson. Colin Farrell. Brandon Gleeson, thank you. Um, just the chemistry between those two. It's barely a two hour movie, but you feel the 30 years of friendship and relationship between those two. Yes. It's probably the best written film of last year that I saw. Agreed. Again, everything ever all at once. It was a fantastic movie. I just think this film was written a lot better in terms of just story structure. Like everything everywhere great. was, yeah, everything everywhere was, it definitely took some 
it definitely took some risks in the screenwriting department. I'm still shocked mm-hmm. that movie even worked as well as it did. So it does deserve yeah. some accolades for that. In lesser hands, that movie would have been a complete mess. Mm-hmm. Banshees, I just think it's got a level of calm, emotional maturity mm-hmm. to it that's just... I walked out of that movie thinking, why do I waste my time with all these blockbusters that <laughs> are pissing me off lately when I could go to more movies like this and come out satisfied? Yeah. It feels like a movie that could have been made 10 or 20 years ago, and you're like, ah, this is cinema. Like, this exactly. could definitely be a, a movie, I would think, in the 90s, or, oh, I just remembered a movie that I watched. Now I have 13. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, it just, it feels one of those, like, one of those movies that they tried something. Not that this one was risky at all, but it just no. feels like an actual film, and I'm going to be honest, whether it nominated or won, that basically, in my eyes, it's Oscar-worthy. Even if Mm -hmm. it didn't win, it's nominated. So only one gets the name on the statue, which who fucking cares? Um, That's kind of my mindset about the Oscars right now. Yeah. But I just, it was a beautiful movie just about this friendship of just breaking apart of just like, yeah, I don't want to, I don't want to talk to you anymore. It's like, well, why? Why do you want to talk to me? It's like, I just don't. And it gets more and more. It's in a place so dull that that's the only thing that anyone cares about. The whole island is invested in when this friendship is breaking apart and why. Yeah, set in the 20s on like this sheep farm island almost. There's only one little town. And I think that town has four or five buildings in it and it's near the docks. And everybody goes to the pub. The post lady hears all the town gossip. Mm -hmm. And it's just this... The music in it is really good. The shot composition, the even the color correction, it's it's subtle, but it's just beautiful in the way it brings out the beauty in Ireland as well, mm-hmm. especially the greenery as well. Um, God, what's his name? The guy who got nominated for supporting actor as well. Barry Keegan? Uh, yeah, him. That he guy was, from Eternals, right? Yes. <laughs> yeah, he was, he was, he was very incredible. good as well. Um, Terry Condon as well. Mm-hmm. He was so good yeah, they were movie. all all phenomenal. I mean, she was the only one who, like, he, her, Carrie Condon and Barry Keegan, their characters were the only ones who were mm-hmm. objectively good in the movie. And you just are like, you, yeah. you really, you kind of feel for them too because they're they're just good people mm-hmm. in between all this crap. And you think Colin Farrell's character is good too, but he's got a petty streak that goes on more mm-hmm. throughout the movie, which is funny because that's when his other friend starts to like him again. He's like, oh, yeah. I, I, I like this idea. Oh, you've become interesting. <laughs> yeah. And they didn't even remember it because he was drunk. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it's a, a phenomenal movie. I think everybody would love it. I remember my uncle and his uh, girlfriend, now fiance, mm. are, um, recommended this to me over Christmas. And I was like, yeah, I'll definitely get around to watching it. And I did watch this before, um, our second leisure list and I just forgot to bring it up or I didn't. I don't remember. Uh, (laughs) And I just think it's a beautiful, simplistic movie that does have some twists and turns, but not so much where it's like mind boggling, but it's just kind of sad at some parts too. But it's just a simple movie that you'll come out and think like, I just watched one of the most well put together films in terms of writing, directing, acting, mm-hmm. in a long time. It's just a simple premise executed very, very well. Mm-hmm. 
which seems like a low bar to clear, but we have yeah. a lot of high concept films that do really, really awful with their concepts lately. So just seeing something so simple done near perfect is it's a hard experience to replicate. Just, you know, go see something like that instead Nobody of the a fuck about Mozart. I'll bet you remember the name. <laughs> True. It used to be nice. Sorry. I'm just remembering the movie now and I'm quoting it. It's really good. Okay, so uh, my next one here is I finally read the end of Tom King's run on Batman, Mm. which was a pretty controversial run at the time because it was coming off of, I believe, Scott Snyder and Greg Capullo's run, which was, that's what got me into Batman comics was their run, and it's one of the all-time best for what they did with the mythology of Batman. Tom King started off very good as in in the role, but then as it went on, people started getting more pissed off with it because the whole thing became basically a hundred issue romance story between him and Selena Kyle. Just all their relationship drama set against the backdrop of Bane's return to Gotham and playing mind games with them over at least a couple years. I mean, a hundred issues and he was doing mm-hmm. two issues a month. So this lasted at least a couple years. It was going and it culminates in a really awesome battle for Gotham. A uh, big, well, I'm not going to say who, but there was a big death in the family uh, at the end of the at the end of the run. That Is I that think pun still intended. <laughs> no, literal, but yes, okay. also pun intended. <laughs> I got Joker, the reference. <laughs> yeah, Joker did the first one. Bane did this one. Mm. So. It ends in a pretty emotional place for the Bat family with reverberations that are still going on in the Bat comics today. So, yeah, Tom King, the highs are really high in his run. The lows are just really frustrating. He has this tendency to repeat dialogue over and over and over. So every issue, I'm like, how many times do I have to hear Batman and Selina say the same dialogue over and over? Which, hey, to his credit... A lot of comics I don't remember after I'm done, but after his run, there's certain conversations burn into my brain because he repeated them a million times. So I'm like, okay, I I know. Now, <laughs> I understand. I know your story better than a lot of other runs I've read. So, yeah. So I thought he was really good on the whole. He did some. He took some risks. I think he nearly pushed Batman forward in a way that I don't know if DC let him was the problem. He he wanted to... The most famous thing was the wedding that didn't happen, which isn't really a spoiler because Batman's not married in the comics now, but a lot of his run was leading up to the big wedding between Batman and Selina Kyle, which, and then she ditched him at the altar. Mm. And that was, I know that made a lot of fans into an uproar because they're like, why can't, comic characters ever move on and be happy why can't the status quo ever shift we we got superman split up from lois lane at this time as well and why can't batman just get because i know it was a i think i talked about that run on the last leisure list or sometime within the last year that was brian michael bendis's run on superman also very controversial for what it did why did they break up (laughs) now i'm curious they didn't break up they just they just kind of separated for story plot reasons oh. it wasn't like an ill will thing it was just she you wanted care to care more about fighting doomsday than me 
that's not Lewis Lane at all. Yeah. <laughs> just, she just yeah. she was just like isolating in her apartment to write a novel or something, and they mm. just weren't living together at that point. It was just a plot contrivance to keep them apart. But uh. yeah, they didn't let Bruce Wayne and <laughs> Selena Kyle get married, which pissed a lot of people off, me included. The story continued after that, and it did have some payoffs, but it was just it was just a frustrating run around yeah. all around. Like I said, the highs were high. The lows were just frustrating. I don't want to say the lows were super low because he, he's still a good writer on the whole. I did like the stories. It just, it took too long to get to the point. And, but he did a really good job with Bane as a character though. He really established the rivalry with Bane well. He also brought back Thomas Wayne from the Flashpoint universe as a major character. Oh, yeah. Okay. Who Who's working with Bane for a lot of it. So he and Bruce are kind of on opposite sides. So seeing Thomas Wayne as a key player in, in the mythos was really interesting for the back half of his run. And that whole mm-hmm. dynamic was a, a pretty big part of the finale, which, yeah, good ending there. Is it so, better or worse than Frank Miller's I'm the goddamn Batman? Better. Oh, it's better than that. <laughs> now, I, know, I understand to my... that Does Miller he call was, Night Wayne or Robin like the R word like a couple times? Uh, Frank Miller's rendition. If I he recall, uses it, I know. if I recall, it was that exact line. Robin was mm. saying something, and then forgive, forgive me in advance. I'm quoting it verbatim, but he says to Robin, "Are you dense? Are you retarded or something? I'm the goddamn Batman." <laughs> I think Frank Miller just had a bad day when he wrote that. To my understanding, Frank Miller's Batman is about a guy who's he's writing intentionally is an unhinged billionaire who puts on a bat costume who's Mm. just actually mentally unstable and verbally and physically abuses people just because he doesn't know how to release his emotions healthily i think that's what frank miller was going for Mm. it's a he wrote it weirdly but (laughs) i i understand that take i don't prefer that take on batman even though The Dark Knight mm-hmm. Returns was kind of a more muted version of it, but those elements were there even in Dark Knight Returns. Right. That said, I am excited to see Frank Miller at Fan Expo this year, and I'm going to try to get oh, him yes. to sign my Dark Knight Returns comic. So You should okay. have him to sign that page of the... <laughs> but, yeah. The I know it's a different Batman. comic, but... Yeah, yeah. All-Star <laughs> Batman. I'll buy All-Star <laughs> Batman just to get him to sign that. <laughs> That'd be yeah. hilarious. All right, what's your next one? Uh, next one, real quick, because I haven't finished it, is uh, Jedi Survivor. It's mm. uh, it is the sequel to the surprising hit of Jedi Fallen Order, and slowly making my way through it. Um, I just haven't tackled it in a couple of weeks because I've been a bit busy with some personal stuff, but mm-hmm. I'm having a lot of fun. The combat is a bit more refined. The uh, different planets I've been to so far, again, I haven't been to many, are really. They're huge. They're big. The The way you can travel around them is you don't just walk everywhere now. And it's not just a bunch of shortcuts. You can actually ride a couple animals to get places faster. And uh, it feels, it does feel like a continuation in a good way where it's five years after the original, I believe. And yeah, okay. you feel the char- the other characters be a bit older. The relationship between Cal and everybody else, especially, I, I don't know much yet but with Marin feels like 
they're building up towards something. And I think it's got spoiler for me through a bunch of screenshots on YouTube, but I saw that coming from a mile away. The boss fights feel so much harder than in the other game. Even just some... And I'm playing on hard mode because it's just fun to do that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and even some of the minion characters are really tough. Like, there's these Yeti-ish creatures. It's not the ones from uh, Hoth, but it's like this giant bear creature. That one was tough. That one was tough to beat. And it wasn't even a boss fight. It was just a minion creature. Uh, but there is... And I will, I'm editing a video about it, so watch out for that. The Ryan Walker official video of me trying to beat the Rancor. It's a really tough legendary boss that if it grabs you with its uh, unblockable attack, it insta-kills you. Oh. Um, it's got a few insta-kill moves. And um, it's funny, actually. EA Respawn on their Instagram actually put out a stat on how many people have died to the Rancor or how many deaths they've done. Yeah. It's really funny. I think it's over like 2 million or something like that. It's ridiculous. Oh, and uh, it's a really fun game. The different stances are really fun. Right away, I went with the White Blades because they just had it. So I was like, I'm going to do that. Oh, that uh, Ahsoka's it even, Blades? Yeah, it even sounds like Ahsoka's Blades when you pull them out. Sweet. Uh, my favorite stances are probably the dual wield and then the um, the staff one when it comes out to both sides. So like the Darth Maul and the Ahsoka stuff. But each stance feels different enough for you to be like, oh, I'll try it here. I'll try it here as well. Um, there's even a stance where it's just a lightsaber and a gun that you can use just to have fun with it. Oh, so like it's Cal really Cal fun. Oh, not Cal. Shit. Um, Ezra. Kind of, uh, no, no, sorry. It's just you have a yeah. lightsaber in one hand and a gun in the other. So yeah, it's not I mean, like it's yeah. built in one. Yeah. Yeah, I just I know, mean I know like what you're that kind of, yeah. Mm -hmm. I think he's the first one I know to wield a mm -hmm. gun, yeah. lightsaber combo. It's a lot of fun. The villain is very interesting coming from the High Republic era. Really? And, yeah. And um, I don't know if this is kind of a spoiler, but you're when barely you, <laughs> into it, right? Yeah, like, I'm barely into it. So, but like when you first meet him, he tries to fucking kill you right away because <laughs> oh. you're part because you're you know you're part of this like Jedi Order that you know trapped him there, and thousands of years later you're here. And that fight, I did beat first try. But I was okay. so close to death. It, it, it's really tough. You, it, like the boss battles, they make you feel tough in this situation. Whereas right. my right. earlier review of Fallen Order uh, on this channel, I said something like the boss battles going back weren't that tough. But that's just think I played it so many times that I just knew everybody's moves. Where here, it's really tough. And I'm having lots of fun. Hopefully, we'll get back into it. So look out for that on my channel. Also, do a do a thing at the end to describe it but yeah lots of fun worthy yeah. sequel yeah you'll hear oh me and the customization is insane the customization is absolutely insane you can mm. get different clothing you can actually change the different colors on the clothing as well you can change the lightsabers you can change the way bd1 looks fully mm. the only thing that's different is because you could customize the mantis in the first game you can't do it in the second game for some reason interesting I think they came out with a statement and said they had so much customization that they had to get through that they couldn't get to the Mantis one for some reason. It was like a time thing. Is this because people were mad that the extent of customization in the first one was just different colored ponchos? Maybe. <laughs> I know I was. <laughs> he doesn't just wear ponchos in this one, right? I've seen some 
No, but you can. <laughs> you can, though. Only the real ones. I think you ones. have to go and find it, though. Okay. Yeah, only the yeah. real fans wear ponchos the entire time. That's Cal Kestis' mm. look. Well, I, I think Cameron Monaghan, when he was at Star Wars Celebration, that's all he talked about. When he was talking about with, like, a game developer on stage, he was like, yeah, but where are the ponchos? Like, he, he's, a, he's in Star Wars, and he's a fan of Star Wars, which is really fun. That's great. So, the next one on my list is Blackberry, mm. which is a Canadian film. Pretty cool. I really liked the Canadian slant to it. Like, a lot of the film is set around uh, Waterloo, I think, and there was a lot of references to Canadian things. So, in a, in a time where I grew up in the 2000s as well. So, I'm like, yeah, you know what, this seems, this seems relatable enough to me. So, I never thought a movie about a phone company would be so interesting, but it was actually pretty riveting. Mm-hmm. It, it was about how the founders of BlackBerry basically created the idea of the smartphone at a time mm-hmm. when, I think the idea was basically, okay, what if we have uh, a phone, a pager, and an email service in one that can be in one device? And then, of course, they, uh, they added their trademark clack to it. That's just kind of how the board sounded. So basically, it's about these tech nerds who had a good idea but didn't know how to execute it with this, with this business guy who was a lot more cutthroat than they were, and he was able to, but he was better with people. So he could kind of bully, bully their way into... Um, into the getting a, a cell networks and deals and like actually grow the brand until they became one of the biggest brands on the planet. Mm. And I thought one of the most interesting things about it was the movie builds you up to a point where when the, when the screen hits, um, see, so you know how they have different kind of, kind of cards to tell you what year it is in movies, right? It's like all oh, location cards or year cards. So it kind of goes about over 15 years. And when the card hits 2007, uh, like I, it was actually an oh shit moment. <laughs> By the time you get there, when you're like, you're emotionally invested and then it's 2007. And if anyone knows what's happening in tech in 2007, you should be scared for these guys. Spoiler yep. alert. That's when the iPhone was introduced. So, mm-hmm. and like, oh yeah, this is, this is going to sink them pretty hard. And it actually goes in depth about what the iPhone did that BlackBerry couldn't do. And I thought it was a really interesting exploration because, well, I don't know if you're, I'm not going to go too far into the, well, I guess this is just history, so I can talk a little bit about it. I just thought it was interesting how they explained that BlackBerry was actually a faster device at the time. Yes. It had a lot, like it was a better made device. But what Apple was doing was, I'm trying to I'm trying to remember what what it was now because I saw this movie a couple months ago. Well, they were mixing but, like music and video as well, right? Well, it wasn't just that. The idea was BlackBerry was selling its its phones. I don't like BlackBerry was selling a certain something like a service, but mm. Apple was selling data. So, okay. so the fact that Apple was selling data for like internet usage and whatnot it didn't matter how fast they could run they were making a lot more money Mm. because they were selling yeah because like oh yeah now i remember yeah so like blackberry it basically used no data 
to to transfer things. That's oh. why it could move so fast. It was very. Oh, I think okay. I think this is kind of how, like it was very streamlined. It like compressed everything really tight, uh, moved along the cell towers really fast. So it's like you could have a really efficient system that way. But Apple was selling the data, so it like it didn't matter how inefficient they were because the more people used, the more money they made. Mm. So mm. they basically completely not only changed the phone but the business model around it. And then it, and, you yeah. know, and then a lot of flashy features which caught on mm. as well. So the movie goes into all stuff like that, and it's actually really fascinating. I don't know if I'm mm-hmm. selling it too well because I, I saw it a while. No, I've heard, not... I've heard, uh, I've heard good things about this movie. Jay Baruchel is just phenomenal. Who, He's funny enough, a couple of days ago walked by me in the streets of Toronto, really? and I was like, "Uh, hi." But I didn't say hi to him. He was on the phone. I didn't want to be rude. I have this rule where if they're busy, I'm not going to bother them. But it was just really weird. And I knew it was him because he looked like Jay Baruchel from like 2013 and he sounded like him, but he had like shades. He just like casually just walking through the streets like a just a normal dude, which, you know, I love that about him. Uh, great guy. I wish I said hi to him, but he was busy. and I didn't want to be rude. Uh, I've heard good things about Blackberry. And it's so funny because me and you are old enough to know how huge Blackberry was back in the day. Everybody and had how. One. And how disappointing all the dads were when they had to switch, <laughs> when they yes. had to switch from BlackBerry to a smartphone. I think my dad was stubborn and he waited a couple years until he finally switched over to one because he loved his BlackBerry so much. It's just something he was used to, yes. um, which makes sense for people of his generation. You know, the technology boom was hard to keep up with and BlackBerry was simple enough and you could see the keyboards. And I yes. liked BlackBerry's as well. My thing that I was pissed about when being young, I had a phone, just like a small cell phone, but it slid out and then there was the keyboard Yeah, because, you know, everybody knows Zoe 101. They had that like back like in the day pocket those keyboard. Were, yeah, the pocket keyboard. I thought those were so cool. Yeah. Uh, and then smartphones were a thing and that kind of sucks. But hey. See, I feel life. this is one of those things that dates me, but I still remember the first time I ever saw an iPhone. It was a little later than most people. I think it was around 20, 20, late 2010, early 2011-ish, so a couple of years after it came out. You know, my small country town, I guess they were finally starting to get some upgrades. So one of the, uh, one of the girls in my class, I saw her just poking mm-hmm. away at her screen, and I'm like, the hell? You can touch the screen? What, what what's is up with, that? What's up with that? <laughs> what do you mean you touch the screen and it, and it, and it responds to you? This is... Yeah, we're in the future. What the? I remember during that that whole tech boom when laptops were doing the uh, the touch screens. I immediately went, "No, I'm not putting my finger on the screen because I've yeah. been trained to. I've been trained to not touch the screen because it gets the screen dirty. No, but exactly. Funny enough, I just I just randomly have the original iPod Touch with me. <laughs> just I had this when I was younger. It was really cool. Look, this is an iPhone 12, like right like right next to it. Look at the size difference of that thing, how much we've come along in just over 10 years or so. It but, used to be yeah, they lauded technology for getting smaller, and now it's gotten bigger. Also, if I charge this, this still works like pretty well. Anyway. I bet you that other phone's not going to work in 10 years. Nope. I'm Probably won't even problems. work. I was not really, say, but. It's not even going to work <laughs> next year. Things I think the worst phone I had was like an iPhone 
what was it? Six SE or something SE. It was something like that. And I had that phone at York and it just kept turning, like freezing and then shutting off and restarting. And then one day just shut off and never turned on again. Went to the Apple store and I was like, hey, this just won't turn on. And they said, oh, the memory board or battery is short. You should have just came to us earlier. We could have repaired it, but now we have to replace it. I was like, okay, how much is it to replace it? 300 bucks. And I'm in university at the time. I'm like, uh, no, thanks. Went to Kudo. I think I'll buy a new Android <laughs> for that much. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> I went to Kudo, paid a tab for a newer phone and it worked better. Like hundreds of dollars cheaper than I still had to pay a tab, but I wasn't going to pay a tab for See, yeah. here's the uh, here's the thing, people. You're not paying for a quality product. You're paying for a brand. The fact mm-hmm. that Apple costs three times as much as Android isn't because it's better. It's because it's Apple. That's yeah. it. Just because they have the name. Because they make their own uh, like hardware. Everything hardware. From the memory boards, from the battery, to the screens. Like Everything is their own. So that's why they yeah. triple the price and everything. But that really pisses me off because mm-hmm. especially for charging ports, like I think it's a, it's a, it's an actual rule. Everything needs to be universal. Mm-hmm. And Apple is getting in trouble for that because they've had their own ports for so long. And every single ver- time they release a new phone, it's got to be a new port with yeah. that you got to buy a, a new piece of technology for it. Like they're breaking some rules here and mm-hmm. they need to be held accountable. I'm not happy and- that I have an Apple product, but... I'm stuck. Like, I, I can't go back. Yeah, it's, it's a weird cycle. thing. I mean, we did a short film recently where I was, you were recording audio on an Android. And I was recording audio on an iPhone. And uh, Justin, our friend, was like, why is Ryan's audio mono? And it took me a second. I was like, oh, because we had to put the audio jack into an iPhone connector to get to connect to the iPhone, which made it mono. And there was, I remember, because it was probably like five in the morning, like a two second pause. And Justin goes, that's fucking stupid. <laughs> and I've never had a more silent laugh in my life. <laughs> Just like, yeah, I agree. Justin's been anti-Apple for as long as I've known him. And he mm-hmm. kind of, not that I was ever pro-Apple, but he dragged me onto that side a long time ago. Yeah. This is a conversation about The only Apple product Black I will theory. ever buy is just, is the phone itself because... The only thing they have going for them is the blue text messages, which I don't think matters anymore. That's just more high school bullshit. Yeah. So I do not endorse Apple unless they pay me <laughs> to do so. I endorse BlackBerry. <laughs> BlackBerry's actually found success Are they again still going? as a Yeah, they pivoted into a security company. Oh. So they don't make That's phones cool. and they don't make phones anymore, but I'm pretty sure they do tech security now. So the company is still around, oh. still doing well. They just changed their business to survive. Well, good for them then that they were able to pivot. Yeah. So I do recommend BlackBerry. It's a really interesting uh, showcase of mm-hmm. the backroom politics of the technology Canadian world. film. Well, Canadian film too, if you care to support that. But it's just, I, barring that, it's just a really interesting story mm-hmm. about tech development and how a new product gets on the market becomes one of the biggest things in the world the the kind of compromises and sketchy dealings they have to make there's a lot of drama like they broke the law a lot to get the product to where it was like the guy the guy in charge (laughs) that was kind of the thing the guy making the phone was you know he was just kind of a nerdy tech guy making the phone but the business guy was making all these moral compromises to make the business Uh. what it was and he didn't tell the other guy about it 
So then everything kind of comes to a head when the law starts catching up to them. And it's right. Like it's a lot. It's a really fascinating real life story. Um, all right. So what's your next one? Uh, my next one, I'm kind of going to group all of this together. Daredevil, Jessica Jones and defenders. I took a break. I was going to binge all of that. Uh, the entire N MCU, I guess MCU. that's what we call it. The NCU, as we called it. Although Justin pointed out, to, sorry, Justin pointed out to me that we can't call it the NCU because we already coined that term for the Nintendo universe. Oh right. He pointed Shit. out that flaw when he listened to the last one, so uh, oh, no. I don't know what to do anymore. I'm I'm gonna stay NCU is still the the Nintendo one, <laughs> but right. Whatever um, we call it. Yeah. Marvel whatever. Netflix universe M N. So I've watched I've watched Daredevil season one and two, Jessica Jones season one. Halfway through Defenders. It's so funny where I took a pause in Defenders. It was um <laughs> it was when they're in the diner and then uh uh Sukorn and Weaver pops up and Jessica Jones like bursts through the front door and she's like, What? Come back and they're all in their hero pose and they're like and they're about to be like, Yeah, and the music's swelling and you feel really good. Then the episode ends and I started watching the next episode. I was like, I need a break. <laughs> I don't know what it was. Like as it was getting into the action, I was like, I'm gonna take a break for a while. How far I don't know what was it was. This, you said this is episode like halfway. I think this is episode four. Alright, so is this literally the episode they got together? Because this is the part that bothered me most about no. Defenders is that it takes halfway through the show for them to get all together in the first place no they had gotten together they're still in the um the restaurant the i don't know i said diner but the japanese restaurant i'm pretty sure yeah, yeah and uh they had there was that whole episode and then when it ended then i took the break um really good shows <laughs> really good action defenders yeah it's tough you know it's not terrible it's decent uh but daredevil season one and two just it's wow. peak television. It's it's really yeah. it's peak streaming television. It's so freaking good, especially season two with. I know you have your differences on it, but it's still a great season. We both agree. Yeah, the Frank yeah. Castle stuff is really awesome. The fact that most of the Netflix Marvel people are coming to Toronto and Fan Expo is crazy. We're gonna go broke. I'm already four hundred dollars uh, into it, and I, uh, it's a month. From I now, know. So and and I sent you a picture. John Bernthal's coming. You're like, are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> like you telling me this now? Uh, but it's it's so funny. Um, I yeah, the the shows are amazing. I wanted to watch rewatch Jessica Jones because I just haven't seen uh that first season in a while. And when we talked about it through explaining the entire timeline of that universe, I really want made me want to watch it again first season's really good i it still holds up i yeah, think yeah. it's great the it's funny because the film noir aspect of it kind of drops off almost a third of the way Interesting. Like the narration's still there a bit and the angles are still filmed the same way the music's the same but it just doesn't feel fil- film noir-esque by the end of it hmm. but i it still holds up uh david tennant is phenomenal Kristen Ritter is phenomenal. Uh, yeah, we've already we did a whole episode on this, so it's a great series. It's a great universe. It's a shame it's dead, or now rebranded. Yep, it was a great universe, and now we have the Disney MCU, which leads me into Secret Invasion, which is something I've been watching lately. We'll probably do a whole episode on this 
mm-hmm. when it finishes in the next couple of weeks. But as of the time of this recording, it's about foreign and uh, meh. <laughs> I'm not feeling this. But y- y- everyone who listens to this podcast knows Marvel hasn't been my thing since, well, honestly, before this podcast even started. I've been on the downward mm-hmm. decline for a very long time on this universe. Secret Invasion, look, I'll give it this. I feel like it's done by people who are actually trying. It's not good, but I still feel like they're trying on this one, mm-hmm. which is more than I felt for a lot of the other ones they put out the last couple of years. There's a lot of kernels of potential in here. Sam Jackson's great in it. Um the bad guy is actually kind of interesting, even though his entire plot line is just a slightly better version of Falcon and the Winter Soldiers. Seriously, okay. the whole show is basically a re- <laughs> like Justin and I were joking about this, but it's true. Secret Invasion is basically just Falcon and the Winter Soldier with higher tier characters in the universe mm. instead of Sam and Bucky and other a people. A nobody- terrorist. <laughs> yeah, and other people nobody cares about. It's like Nick Fury and um, who, uh, who else? <laughs> like it, it's Nick Fury and um, like Rhodey is in a lot mm-hmm. of it, and like it's guys like that who are just that yeah. level, like Maria Hill, even just that level above. But it's basically the same plot. The aliens want to find a place in a society that doesn't really have a place for them. So they're trying mm-hmm. to carve out their own niche in well, terrorist yeah. fashion. It's strange. I've only seen one episode and I watched it when it came out. And then by the end of the episode, I was like, what more? Like, are they, are they trying? <laughs> it's, it's so generic. It's weird because it For was, the first episode was really aliens, generic. Yeah. And then like what bothered me, the whole scroll thing is that. It feels like they're making up for Captain Marvel where they should have just been bad in Captain Marvel. But now it's like, oh, now this group of scrolls have broken off and now they are bad and now we are making them terrorists. I will say I think that's part of the point, though, is that they're trying to say scrolls are not bad. But after 30 years of being left in, in the lurch without a home world, they're becoming radicalized. Right. So it's supposed to be it's supposed to be this kind of tragedy, like a once good race I believe is becoming it, radicalized. Kinda, yeah. I just wanted to see that. And <laughs> when they were first introduced, and um, yeah, so my we thing about this, sh- my bring th- up spoilers, but so my thing about this show happens. basically is just um, right now, just imagine me as Henry Cavill from Zack Snyder's Justice League when um, Steppenwolf drops the axe on his shoulder and then he he blows this cold <laughs> breath on it, shatters it into a million pieces. Not impressed. Oh, how's that not a meme? It's so good. That was funny. I knew exactly what you meant. Mm-hmm. That's great. That's just me one of the, the best right moments in the Snyder Cut, by far, is that moment right there. Just the chills you get. Oh, I hope this is off topic, but I hope one day we get to see the deleted cameo of uh, Henry Cavill in the Flash. I hope one day. Like, oh yeah, it's I heard, on, like, I heard that was a thing. Yeah. Cause it was filmed, but then they just didn't put it in because of Boo. he got quote unquote fired. Yes. Um how dare they? Don't worry, if they show us back on a television. If Ugh. Cavill Superman footage is out there, I demand it. Yeah. 
I even like I every once in a while I'll go back and watch that Black Adam clip of him showing up and just the music and you see him in the very colorful suit and you're like, ah, he looks good. What could have been? But hey, the fan cast, the fan casting, the new casting looks amazing. The actor is kind of uh, an unknown, but he's he works. He's got the look of it. And the actress for Lewis is very good as well. Marvelous Miss Maisel. I think she's going to kill it. She was also in uh, House of Cards for a little bit as well. I'm on board. I actually have Marvelous Mrs. Maisel on my list a little bit later, but I wanted to, I wanted oh. to, I wanted to skip back for the Henry Cavill thing, and let, let's transition that into The Witcher because we were both watching that lately too. Yes, I forgot. I didn't put it on my list, but we we're watching it. I just finished episode three. Me too. We're both three episodes in, uh, and what, we will talk right about now? five, and then five? part right two. <laughs> okay, so we're nearly <laughs> we're nearly more. through part one. And it's been out at least a couple of weeks as of the time of this mm. recording. So the fact we're only three episodes in is is already enough of an indicator. We're not rushing to get through this thing. Yeah, we will do like a full episode or maybe half when the second part comes out. Yeah, it's just weird. I feel like the news of Henry Cavill leaving it made sucked me not the life to, out of it. Yeah, sucked the life out of this season. And just watching it too, you're just kind of like, I'm again. I'm episode episode three in and i don't know what the plot is i don't know what's happening and it's not the fact that it's just a bunch of people not doing everything it's just the fact there are so many storylines happening at once it's yeah. really strange there's Geralt, yennefer and uh siri they technically all have their own little storylines except Geralt. he's just kind of being this neutrality yaskir has his own storyline there's the fire mage who's got his own storyline the brotherhood of wizards have their own storyline the like they're all about this in but, but the thing is they're all about siri all the storylines yeah. are about her but they're all kind of doing their own thing about it yeah is the, is it's the like thing. here's here's the start point where like siri running yeah. away Everybody wants to get her. Here's the end point. And then here's all the storylines just trying to get to the end point. Web They're out. not crossing, yeah. over at, crossing over at all. It's this weird mesh web. And it's so strange because I really like season two. Yeah. Uh, I, even, I tolerated season one for a bit after a couple of rewatches. I liked it. But season two, I really liked. Here, it yeah. just feels like, I don't know what we're doing. I really liked the first episode, though. I thought yeah. there was a lot of great action. First I thought good. the and I'll tell chemistry you between Yennefer and yeah. Geralt were really good. Yes. I just don't know what's happening. And I think that's, I think it's in it's controversial to say season two was better for a for a large portion of Witcher fans who are very beholden to the books, and they say season yes. one was very accurate to the books, and they really enjoyed that. Season two started doing its own thing. But you know what? I agree with you. I don't. I haven't read the Witcher books, and as somebody who doesn't know anything about the Witcher, season two was more streamlined. It entertained me more. It was more. It was focused in a way season one was not. Season one, the t I didn't even realize there were multiple timelines for. A, I know way too until long. Like yeah, and to me, season two was better. You know what I like? Season two left me with a promise of hope for season three because Geralt, Siri. Uh, Yennefer and Yaskier were all together for the first time in the show. And I'm like, oh, good. The show works best when they're all together and they're finally all together. So can we just do that now, please? And then season three splits them all apart again in the first episode. Oh, my when God. When Geralt goes That's off on so his own, I'm like, stop. So That's now we have. 
that's what yeah. sucks too is that it's Henry Cavill's last season, and you t- you said that before the season came out, so that yeah. takes the life out of it too. And they're like, okay, I hope he has this amazing adventure. I have to do this thing. I have to do this thing. Well, we can't go together. Let's split up. You're immediately like, why? You have the three best actors on your show who are meant to be together because of your words, destiny. People who have destiny always find each other mm-hmm. and you split them up. Why? I already have four other side plots I don't care about. Don't give me three main plots that I need to keep track of. I mean, I know Geralt's pissed at Yen and is kind of looking for excuses, but like they were already together for a very long mm-hmm. time before he left. Like, yeah, the I, I episode read one is not a big was, spoiler. Yeah. I heard their the timeline in season one is supposed to span over like hundreds of years before they get to Siri. Their like relationship or something or like that. More, yeah. It's supposed to be yeah, it's like a long a time. Very long time, yeah. Yeah. Because I think Geralt's plotline in season one, mm-hmm. he meets her parents just as like the mom realizes she's yeah. pregnant. Mm-hmm. And then in the main timeline series running around, so it just feels different. It feels like again, I haven't watched that much, but it feels different directors it feels like different showrunners even though it's not just in terms of the editing there's not much action um even though some like the very i was very worried the first action scene where there was very clear the super fake like blood squirts coming off the bodies and you could tell it was really fake because that's all that came off there was no indication that there were stab marks on the people to help sell they got stabbed so i was like oh no oh no oh no and then later on the action got a bit better but it's still a cool fantasy world and I like being in it and it's not offending me or anything. It's just, it's just kind of there and yeah. but there's not enough energy to it. I'm just mm. kind of watching it out of Henry Cavill love at this point. I can't wait to watch the, on their words, seamless transition into Liam Hemsworth. Yeah. They're going to doctor who style it where he just flashes into a ball of light and he's just imagine transitions into a new, no, he thing. does the Skyrim thing where he pays the witch and, uh, <laughs> in river run under like under the sewers to change your face you can yeah. do that by the way <laughs> uh, so it's a great mechanic the, in skyrim let's go on to your next thing i think you're next right uh yeah i don't know if we talked about this last time but uh after watching the sopranos mm-hmm. i watched the many saints of newark ah finally love the sopranos yep really love we talked about it on our own but we didn't talk about it uh I remember, oh yeah, because I got off the train and I told you about it because I just finished it while, or I was in the middle of watching it. Right. But I really loved The Sopranos, thought it was phenomenal, I finally finished it, and then I watched Many Saints of Newark. What happened? (laughs) It's the same writer, it's the same, it's the same team almost. It's not that it's bad, it's just a lot of nothing. It, I felt like this needed to be a one-off season of a TV show where they I expanded agree. all the characters, expanded Dickie's story, expanded young Tony's story, because I thought he did pretty well. I thought he held up to his dad very well. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought the best part I, about I, this was the cast. I'm just looking yeah. up a cast list, right? Vera Farmiga is... Uh, Vera Farmiga, perfect casting. Uh, uh, John Berthal. John Berthal is Johnny Boy. Like, they... Or Corey Stoll is Junior. Mm-hmm. Perfect. Let's see, Billy Magnuson is Polly. He's really good, yeah. too. Uh, John Magaro is uh, Silvio. Mm-hmm. Like, they're all... Like, oh, yeah, and Alessandro Nivola is Dickie. He was really charming yeah. and a standout, too. I'm like, oh, yeah, so this is the Dickie of legend. Never, like, Tony's mentor, mm-hmm. the guy they talked about so often on The Sopranos. Mm-hmm. They're all... 
Oh, and Michael Gandolfini, obviously, he's very, you know, Tony. The actors are all so Ray good. The material it. is not. Yeah, it's so it's so strange because the first half you're kind of like, okay, you get the mobster lifestyle a little bit. There's this weird. <laughs> I'm just gonna spoil it. There's this weird plot where Dickie is in love with his dad's wife, who he beats, and then he kills his dad in the car, which I think was a good scene. And then later on, stuff happens. I don't want to full spoil it because yeah, I do think yeah. it's deserving of a watch. But and then when that happens, you're just kind of like, there, no story happens. It, it's literally, it's like an ending of an early on Sopranos episode where it's like, oh, it's just over, but that's stretched out to an hour. It, it's 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 really strange. I don't think it's terrible as some people say, but I don't think it was up to the Sopranos level that it should be. I think the problem is that they're trying to make it for people. They made it into a standalone movie. Like they're trying to bring in new fans. Mm-hmm. But you'd have literally no idea what's going on if you didn't watch The Sopranos. There's oh too many God. characters to keep track of. Mm-hmm. And you just, who are these people again? I have no idea. The only reason I even care is because I actually know who they're referencing in a different time period. and Like all the foreshadowing I they're doing for the show. If, I bet if... James Gandolfini was still alive. He'd definitely be a producer on this mm-hmm. and he would have a lot more input into what happened during the show. Just in terms, I don't think he would, who knows if he would help write it. I don't know if he was a writer yeah, uh, when he was alive, but I feel like even just his presence around would be really beneficial yes. for the story. Definitely. And it just sucks that he's, I, when I, th- when I think about actors who have passed way too early, um, He's one of them, James Gandolfini, um, Michael Clark Duncan, mm-hmm. who was really good, uh, Green Mile, anybody, even Kevin Conroy. I know he was 65, but that still hurts. It still hurts seeing. And yeah, he was just this powerhouse of, hey, this is a television show, and here's one of the best actors of all time. So, yeah. I still want to see a sequel, though, with Michael Gandolfini. Oh, yeah. I definitely still- watch another because there's still bits of Tony's backstory that they never, they didn't mm-hmm. quite get into yet. So they they do have yeah. some prequel stuff to show still. I'd watch more prequel stuff. I wish they would show more prequel stuff with Tony's family. Mm-hmm. Like surround that now where the, the many saints of Newark, it ended off great where it, uh, it shows like it's the close up of, um, what's his name? The, his son's name. Christopher. Not like, not I know the actual person, like James Gandolfini's son's name. Oh, Michael. It's like it's the close up of him looking down at a certain someone. And uh it's got that Sopranos theme as it's going into closing credits. And you just feel like, okay, there has to be a sequel to this or something. It does not feel like the end of a prequel series to me. Yeah. But please make it a show next time. Don't do how to do a movie. Well, please again. do a one whole season thing. Alright, so this I I'm just gonna do Two because I don't have much to say about this one. Yeah. Um. So my next one, I finished a Superman trade paperback, and this was I'm very behind on comics and video games and everything. Stop, just stop. Mm-hmm. You all know I'm behind on everything at this point. But There's a joke in our group chat that Joe's gonna play God of War 2018 and 2026. <laughs> that's my that's my name. That's in his chat, name. Isn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so this one is the Superman book after the Brian Michael Bendis run. 
and it's just before Jonathan, I think this is just before Superman goes off to War World and Jonathan Kent takes over the Superman title. Yes, I do know still, I do about things that happen oh, his son. after Sorry. I read. Th- I was yeah. like, I thought of Papa Kent first for some reason. Well, that's what he's named after. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. I just remembered. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I'm just at that transition point. And it's a really nice story about the last mission they faced together. Because at this point, Jonathan Kent has been in the Legion of Superheroes for a while in the 31st century. And he knows, he comes back to the past to visit his dad. And he knows that around this time, Superman allegedly disappears. And this is one of the, this is one of the last times history remembers him. And he's like, while I'm, I'm going to live this last day with my dad kind of knowing that something bad is going to happen to him, but I'll just appreciate it for what I will because I'm not going to ruin the timeline. So he's just kind of doing this mission with his dad and bad things are happening and then he, they get sucked over to this alien planet. And a lot of it is about this narration that uh, Clark recorded for Jonathan uh, before the events of this story where the whole thing is basically about the that point in parental and children relationships where kind of the the torch is passed like I've taught you everything I I know and now you have to go into the world with the lessons I've taught you and just try to be better than I have in my life and just be your own man and I'm and I'm always going to worry about you but I've given you the tools to survive on your own and now that you're you're going off on your own. I feel myself changing as well as a as a parent because now I see the world in a in a very different way ever since you came into my life and now that you're going and so you've like just being your parent has taught me things as well about life I never would have known. So it's it's just kind of it's about that transition point in in a parental life where you don't don't become equals but you're both adults now. The child is moving on from the family, and the father's got to learn to cope with that. Except it's kind of flipped as well because Jonathan knows that his dad's leaving too. He knows that mm-hmm. Superman won't be around much longer, and he's kind of coping with the fact that his dad's not going to be in his life much longer either, for the foreseeable future. So it's kind of this. It it was just a really quick story, for uh, in this like a couple issues, but I thought it was pretty impactful for what it was. Uh, so my next one, Justin and I finally finished Chernobyl. Yes. Thank God. We, what do you think? It's great. <laughs> yes. It's very, <laughs> it's one of the best written shows I've seen in many, Craig Mason. many years. Yes. Yes. But forgive me for taking this long on it because it's so depressing. Oh, it's so depressing. <laughs> we watched the first, we watched the first two episodes maybe six months ago and couldn't get yep. through the rest because it just. It was too much. We were just kind of in this emotional lull, both of us at the time. And we're like, this show is just bringing us down. It's making us depressed. Yeah. We can't, we got to wait till like summer to finish this thing because mm-hmm. when everything else is, when the, when it's bright outside and it's not dark and snowing and we need, we need a better vibe to finish this show in. Mm-hmm. So we finally did. And imagine uh, watching Chernobyl and then the last of us back to back the two Craig Mason properties. You're just like, Oh my God, so much dread. <laughs> it's the cause for depression 
<laughs> people wonder I mean, why there's some our, beautiful stuff in the last of us but chernobyl is just dread. people wonder why our generation has mental health issues is because they watch craig mason shows don't take that seriously. That's a that's anybody. a that's a compliment to Craig Mason. Yeah, <laughs> he's so good at his job, he causes depression, which is, yeah, I take that as a compliment. <laughs> yeah, but he really is fantastic uh, as a writer. Mm-hmm. The whole thing, like the production values in that show, were great, and the whole time we were watching every episode, we were getting into it, and then we had that realization every episode of oh damn it, this actually happened. This isn't just really well-written drama. Every one of these things, and then we looked it up, and it's actually very accurate to what really happened to Chernobyl. And we're like, how is this not fiction? How is this all real? This is ridiculous. It's so crazy how, and it's crazy when you think about it too, because you think about Chernobyl, especially our generation, where it's like, oh yeah, this was years and years ago. This is ancient history. No, this happened in the 80s. Like, this was a possible world ending event and it happened so recently like when our parents were growing up and who knows how much they knew about it back then i didn't even i don't think my parents have watched it but i kind of wanted to ask them how much did you guys know about chernobyl growing up but i I can't show my parents this my mom can't handle i know i know for a fact she can't handle that scene with the dogs in the last couple episodes oh my god that one messed me up i was like holy crap because they just had to for people who don't know they had to go into uh the residences of uh pripyat i think is the city nearby chernobyl yeah and a a lot of people uh who live there had to abandon their animals because they couldn't take them away and they just had to euthanize them all of them they had to euthanize them they had to kill them burn the bodies later just because if they spread out into the wild and infect more animals then that could destroy the world essentially it's just this really a, sad yeah. scorched earth just, policy everything yeah. had to die or be moved out of that area everything and the way they explain not to take away from your i just love this show yeah. not to take the way they explain how it happened is so well done yes i don't know how they will do it yes there's some technical babble like scientists babble that doesn't go through my mind perfectly but yeah i yeah. still understood it's almost this perfect concoction of they all made the right mistake in order for this thing to happen one after another yes it was a very specific chain of events that in any other circumstance should never have happened like they talk about mm-hmm. later in the show in the last couple episodes how Yes, they messed up on the safety protocols, for mm-hmm. sure. But, like, even the safety protocols being messed up should never have even been triggered unless this specific set of circumstances happened. It should never yeah. have even gotten to that level in the first place to find out that the safety failed. Mm-hmm. It's crazy, too. And even during, uh, right now, the uh, conflict between Ukraine and Russia, when the headline of the Russians hit a, uh, a factory Nuclear near Chernobyl. Plant. Yeah. Like, I was like, uh, because I'd seen the show at that point. I was like, why is nobody talking about this? Like, this is really bad. <laughs> this is really bad if it gets exposed again. But yeah, they I think were able to fix it and stuff. The show does a fantastic job at describing events in the most epic way possible in a way that really makes you feel the gravity of it. Like, I remember mm. in one of the first two, just for example, when I think. It was, um, yeah, it, like the 
the government guy was talking to the scientist and he was like, okay, so explain to me, explain, uh, yeah, Skarsgård was, I don't remember the other guy's name now. Jared Harris. Jared Harris. I just looked up for you. Thank you. So he was explaining, he's like, okay, so what's happening here? Walk, walk me through this. It's like, okay, so this thing's melting down. Sure. What do we do? And he's like, I don't know. We are literally dealing with something that has never (laughs) happened on the face of this planet before. This is a first time issue in Earth's history. Mm -hmm. I also like not to spoil the series because it is history where the Russian government at the time, the Soviet Union, told uh, uh, Jared Harris's um, uh, Legosov, oh, it's pronounced something different. My bad. Um, Valerie, whatever. Legosov? Legasov, thank you. They told him, hey, blame it on these three guys and these three guys alone or we will hurt you in a sense because the Soviet Union very famously is known for keeping secrets even from their own people. Yes. And the way he explains it in court, this happened in real life too, and the way it's just directed and written, it's just like these three people were making all the mistakes and they should be blamed for it. However, they did not know they were making the mistake because of this. So I just think it's this really beautiful, true-to-life biopic miniseries, and I applaud Craig Mason for everything. And it's what's really funny to me, every biopic does this, where they'll show the real-life pictures at the end, and they show the little word descriptions. Yeah, yeah. And I really like it when they do that. Normally, in a movie or a TV show, it's a minute, maybe 30 seconds, not even that much. In this show, I think it goes on for like four minutes. They just yeah, explained so much, and I really appreciate that. And they even were like, hey, by the way, this character, <laughs> like this one doctor, is the accumulation of like 50 doctors because we're making a six-episode miniseries. We can't have all these different characters, so here's the, accumula- uh, the accumulation of all of them in one character. Like yeah. They straight up were like, hey, we knew we were doing something wrong here, but this is why we did this. Like, um, I have a very high sensitivity for for media it's not easy to shake me but this show was horrific and disturbing and made me sick to my stomach in some parts just the radiation just on like the people just like the effects of it yeah. long term the or makeup like that scene, oh the scene when um when the one girl went to visit her husband in the hospital who was the firefighter and just yeah. the way he and just the way he looked after all the radiation sickness I'll describe it for people at home. He's got no face. He has no face anymore. It's really disturbing stuff. And it's just, it's crazy that it happened in real life. Not that long ago. Yes. It's insane to me. It's very disturbing. I think everybody should watch it though, because it's really well written, really well directed. And it's a true to life story. Probably the most accurate in recent memory. Yeah. In terms of a biopic, more than Elvis, I'll say that. <laughs> I don't know why I'm shitting on Elvis. But <laughs> Elvis was good. He just Elvis left. was. I liked Elvis. I just don't know why I just brought it up. Just it left out a few things. Yeah, I, I just remember. I just Sorry. remember Justin and I looked up a radius in Ontario. We're like, well, if the nearest Ontario nuclear power plant did the same thing, how screwed are we? Oh, <laughs> oh yeah, we're screwed. The whole province. <laughs> yeah, basically. Yeah. <laughs> Because people don't realize most of the population is like south in of south, Canada. Yeah. And it's just, there's nothing up top. If we had a Chernobyl here, oh. like if we had a Chernobyl in Ontario at the next nearest power plant, you and I are an hour apart, but we're both screwed. Oh, we'd have to move to Manitoba. <laughs> uh, yeah. 
I think even Manitoba would be screwed. Anyway, what's your next one? The only safe place would be like Nova Scotia or Vancouver. From that particular one? Yeah. Oh, God. Unless it's like Chernobyl and it just keeps going. Because like they said, if they let it keep going, it will destroy the entire world with it. Because there was a bit... It's 13 game. It's 13,000. I still remember the bit too. when they're. Oh. The, I still remember the bit when the thing was melting down, and then I was like the oh shit moment when they're describing it to Gorbachev, and then they're they realize that there's four other reactors that could melt down mm. in a chain reaction, and like yeah. all this trouble is just over one, and then the other three could melt down too, and it was just like twist after twist like that, so engaging. It's insane that it was this series of events that led to this disaster that just happened to be perfectly done. But then also, everybody did the right thing in order to clean it up. It's yes. amazing that they were able to save the planet in the first place. Yes. I mean, even, I think they brought this up at the end, the coal miners, when they had to dig it out in case it melted through the concrete and go into the earth, they had to dig it out. It never melted through the concrete. So all those miners who got... You know, most of them had cancer later on. Yeah. Um, they didn't have to do that, but it was a precaution that they did just in case, which is kind of sad, but I'm sure those coal miners, if you ask them, they'd probably say they'd do it again. Or but, the scene, you know. uh, or, or the other scene when they got like a hundred, they got hundreds of guys to go up on the rooftop to be like, oh. like 30 seconds out there, throw whatever you can off the roof and get the back most as fast as possible. scene ever. Or the scene when the it's three divers, when the divers went under with the uh, with mm-hmm. their rad meters, they had to go water diving to get shut the pumps mm-hmm. off. I think most of them are still alive. Those uh, like three yeah. or four divers, yeah, they actually which is insane. Somehow made it this far. Yeah, but anyway, it's, I think what I remember like one. Ri- sorry, I just love Chernobyl, but the yeah. one written line I loved was like, "Well, why are we wearing masks?" It's like just to keep up appearances or something like that. We're yeah, just like pretty much. they know they're fucked, but like they just can't. It's just like, holy fuck. It's Which, so hey, that's kind of <laughs> reminiscent of something that happened earlier <laughs> in what? recent time. What? What are you talking about? <laughs> Nothing. I'm kidding. I'm not an anti-mask. It definitely helped. Like 10%. Anyway. It's just, it would have helped more if everybody wore it. Or whatever. It's funny because <laughs> it, it didn't help the people who decry masks are always like, oh, well, I'm still going to get sick. I'm like, it's not. It's not about you. It's trying to prevent. Yeah. It's trying to prevent you from spreading the sickness. That's you, where they you might fucked still up. Get though. It. That's where the government's fucked up. Is they sold it terribly. Yeah, they sold it as it's to You're stop you sick. to get sick. But that's but not the what whole it's thing for. Was like it, that's yeah. It's not why people wear. I mean, it's why people wear masks when yeah. they're doing surgery. But it's also so you don't spit in the goddamn person's open chest. It's trying to prevent your aerosol from getting into the air and do other exactly. people. It's not it's not preventing other people from making you sick. That's not the point. You're thinking too self-centered, and that's why everyone yeah. Anyway, that's my health and safety rant. But yeah, Chernobyl's Thanks, how you do a history adaptation. Okay, my next Show this one. In- oh, my next one is a little film called Rounders. It is this Really well-made 90s movie starring Matt Damon, Edward Norton, John Malkovich, John Turturro, yada, yada, yada. Back when films were just like, hey, let's make a film and go with it. And Matt Damon has a very, um, well, not publicly. He said during an interview once, when he was making movies back in the 90s and 2000s, they could rely on the DVD sales. So they could just make everything. They could just make anything that they want. Where nowadays... 
they don't make any money on streaming. Let's be honest. That's why there's multiple strikes happening. Yeah. And uh, I think just today or yesterday, the actor and the SAG unions went on an actor strike as well with the writers. So Hollywood shut down. Hollywood is shut down. So we're going to it's going to be a great few years, people. And uh, but yeah, this, to go back to this movie, it's about this guy who he's trying to become a lawyer, but his real passion is uh, poker. His real passion is gambling. He he loves to gamble. He loves to. And it's not that he's a bad gambler. He's a really good poker player. And the opening scene of this movie is him just making one bad uh, bet, one really bad bet. Um, he thinks he's got the high card, he got too cocky, and then he's flushed out. He's bankrupt. And then it cuts to a few years later where he's trying to get himself together. And then here's this guy, Worm, Edward Norton, who comes out of his jail. It's his old gambling buddy. And they get up to their old hijinks again. He's got this girlfriend who's uh, in school with him. Uh, Matt Damon, by the way. Uh, Matt Damon's girlfriend. who uh, Gretchen Mole. She's kind of this 90s actress. Um, she's pretty good in it as well. And... He's kind. Of, he's trying to balance his, okay, what life does he want to be? Does he want to be a lawyer or does he want to go back to being uh, uh, a gambler? And it's just this really fun indie film with this great cast, great writing. It's not the most phenomenal movie ever, but it's just a lot of fun where it definitely teaches you a lot about poker and not just Texas Hold'em. It teaches you the different game uh, card games as well. It's a lot of fun. And the chemistry between Damon and Norton is superb. They're, Edward Norton is having so much fun playing the sleazy type of New York kind of guy. I I, I yeah. love him in this movie. Uh, yeah, it's a great movie. So my next one is another comic book. I'm chipping away through Grant Morrison's run on Green Lantern right now. Few issues from the end. <sighs> this one's very mixed for me. It's a it's a real mixed bag. Because the thing is, Morrison is clearly a fan of Silver Age Green Lantern. I am not. <laughs> I've read Silver Age Green Lantern, all of it. And, well, see, the funny thing is Grant Morrison is taking out the best parts of Silver Age Green Lantern, the zany weirdness, and not the frustrating bits like the fact that he spent most of his time on Earth, even though he was a space cop. It was very frustrating for me to read it that like they it was over 10, like 14 years of the Silver Age and they barely played into the premise until the back half of it when he finally left Coast mm-hmm. City. I'm like, finally, you're doing something interesting. Anyway, that's a rant on Silver Age Green Lantern. But <laughs> Grant Morrison's Green Lantern. It, it's about Hal Jordan, as a lot of Green Lantern stories are kind of just going through the weirdest elements of space, multi-dimensional things, the uh antimatter world of Quard fighting the black stars and what I appreciated about it, the art style is incredible. It's some of the best looking comics I've read in a very, very long time. I think that's they're drawn by Liam Sharp. And Grant Morrison's writing is also very interesting because the way they write the the dialogue is very like it feels legitimately alien when aliens are speaking it doesn't feel like people are talking which is both a a plus and a negative because when i'm reading it it's very hard to take in the dialogue naturally 
because it doesn't sound natural. So the intellectual in me is like, oh, wow, yeah, this sounds alien because Hal Jordan's talking aliens. That makes a lot of sense. (laughs) This is the most, for a a series that's set in space, this probably feels the most accurate to how an intergalactic police corps would actually interact with people or how these aliens would communicate with, like, it just, it feels intellectually good, but it doesn't read the best to me. It's not. Right. It's not it's not very entertaining, but I appreciate it. Mm. Just because I have to I have to work so hard to kind of understand what's going on. And maybe other people don't have that problem, but it doesn't read smooth to me. So I, I'm reading it mostly for the art and the stories are kind of interesting. Grant Morrison once again clearly thinking very big. I appreciate that they go really weird and most of them are standalone. And he doesn't sorry, they don't have a very long run on the either so it's yeah so it's it's limited but uh yeah i'm getting through it i'll probably finish it within the next couple months i don't get to comics that often even though i read a lot a couple months ago but uh yeah so that's that did you hear uh in james gunn's dc universe they casted um for guy garner for live action as nathan fillion so I, the guy who's yeah, done I Hal did. Jordan voiced in a few, I did a few hear that a lot of times, and now he's Guy Gardner. I think he would have been a great Hal Jordan. I don't know why they cast mm-hmm. him as Guy Gardner. That's what my friend said too. He was like, he's a great Green Lantern, but why Guy Gardner? <laughs> just make him, let's make him old Hal Jordan. Old Hal Jordan. Maybe because they're doing a young Superman, they want a young Hal Jordan as well. But I don't know. Maybe I the way I've always I thought for a very long time. The ideal Green Lantern project I want to see. Okay, this is bad for me to be putting ideas out on the internet. But my pitch for a Green Lantern movie was Lethal Weapon in Space. Hal Jordan is the grizzled old vet. And Jon Stewart's the new kid on the block who he's got to train to be the new Green Lantern. Oh, I hope they do Jon Stewart in the TV show that's coming up. Yeah, they've been working on that show for a while. Anyway, Mm -hmm. we got got a lot more to go and we're... I mean, yeah. What's your next... Love Nathan Fillion. Love the casting. Um, he was a welcome surprise in Guardians Three. Yeah. Uh, my next Very one funny. is oh, my friend's an idiot too. Oh my god, so funny. When I saw him, I was like, oh, "It's Nathan Fillion." Yeah. Uh, my next two bunched together because it's the same franchise: uh, Ocean's Eleven and Ocean's Twelve. Ocean's huh. Eleven, one of those classic films, you know, from back Frank in the Sinatra, day. Frank Sinatra, 1960s. I know. Not that not one. one. I know. <laughs> I know what you mean, though. The, that's the original, Joe. No, the remake. But, uh, yeah, Brad Pitt, Matt Damon, George Clooney. Uh, uh, oh, no. Uh, <laughs> Andy Garcia. So yeah. many different actors. And they're and like phenomenal storytelling. Yeah. Yeah, there's 11 of them. Um, Don Cheadle's in it. They're all, it's phenomenal cast. And the way this heist movie is the most phenomenal heist movie ever. And it's like, I'm doing this real quick because everybody knows Ocean's Eleven's great. And then I watched Ocean's Twelve. It's not great, but it's so silly that I accepted it. Because it ties it's such too a much silly into the first movie. one. It does. It really does. And but it it's super silly. Yeah. It's super silly. I'll just say it. Um, Jennifer Gardner. Is it Jennifer Gardner? Am I getting the right one? Oh, God. I haven't seen these movies in a long time. Um, I have to look it up real quick. Sorry, Julia Roberts, not Jennifer Gardner. 
Julia Roberts is in the first one and the second one, but they do a gag in Ocean's 12 that Jennifer, that Julia Roberts' character looks so much like Julia Roberts that they use... It's super meta. It's a super meta joke that they bring in Bruce Willis, who is a real-life friend of Julia Roberts, mm. and he's like, Julia, what are you doing? It's so weird and so meta, but I kind of love it. It's a super That's serious... And they and they make and they don't take it too seriously. It's kind of like and it's still a little bit fun. Catherine Zeta Jones is in it as well, who plays kind of like the ex of Brad Pitt. It's now after saying I've seen it, I don't remember the ending. I don't remember much of it. Yeah. Um, haven't watched Ocean's Thirteen. It kind of put me off from watching it, but I've heard Ocean's Thirteen is a good good one. I'm in the same boat. I've heard it's good, but I I never got to it after twelve. So I'll have to yeah. do that eventually. Well, that's my quick. You know, I've seen Ocean's Elevens before, and I know it was phenomenal. I just wanted to watch it again. Yeah. Give Ocean's a 13 a shot at some point. You hear yeah. about, uh, I still, it's it's kind of, I don't mean to harp on people's failure, but I just think it's hilarious that they made Ocean's 8, hoping it would be a trilogy. Oh, gosh. Like 8, 9, and I 10. Bet. I didn't watch it, but I did not hear good things. Uh, me neither. I know the I twist, it's, though. It's not good. It's not a good twist. <laughs> Well, well, thanks for the PSA. <laughs> so, uh, my next one I'll is Buffy, Buffy the Vampire Slayer Season 6, which is generally considered the darkest of the entire show's run, which, yeah, yeah, it, it definitely takes a turn. Uh, to tell you why exactly would probably be spoiling season five for sure which was already starting to take a dark turn but let's see season six deals with look the thing about season six is that very clearly the theme of the year was that real life sucks more than demon hunting season Mm. six the whole thing is basically buffy has to actually deal with being an adult now she's gotta she's gotta pay the rent she's gotta be a guardian to this kid um try to be an actual parental figure she's got to hold down a job she's got to deal with her her slaying duties as well and she's kind of emotionally disconnected from everybody else in her life as their lives are all falling apart too and then she everyone in season six kind of goes through a cycle of depression and emotionally abusing themselves and just turning inward into their most darkest personalities. There's a lot of allegories for like Willow has this whole storyline. That's kind of an allegory for drug abuse where she starts abusing her, her Wicca powers and and like Buffy's just depressed the entire time. And like Xander's pretty much the same. No, Xander and Anya, they have their thing too, where they, like Xander's getting cold feet about their wedding for the entire season. And it's like, everybody's going through something and it's and the funny thing is it's more depressing than the actual demons and like, Mm. and big threats that are happening. And they also have it where some of the most slimy villains in the entire series are just three nerds. Oh, three human nerds called the trio are some of the most despicable villains in the entire show this season. 
which it it starts off that they're they're just a joke. They're just nerds who are like, we want to be super villains because we read too many comic books and we think we can pull this off. And then they actually, it's a slow progression of them actually doing some pretty monstrous things when they don't even necessarily realize how bad they're being until at a certain point they catch up, it catches up to them, but they like it. They're like, yeah, we're, we're going to go full tilt into being villains now. And it just gets really, it gets really dark and depressing. And I understand a lot of Buffy fans hate this season because of that, because it takes such a, a, like a left turn in the, oh boy, I'm going to be very depressed after watching this season. But personally, I, I love it more in concept. It didn't feel great to watch, but I respect that they took this kind of turn because I think the show needed a shot in the arm to keep it interesting. They tackled some really... Buffy the Vampire Slayer is a weird one for me because a lot of shows I watch after the fact where I just kind of watch the entire thing at once and it sometimes it resonates with me more than others. But the thing about Buffy is that I watched it at the exact times in my life I was supposed to watch it. I watched the first three seasons back in high school when Buffy and her friends dealing with high school troubles was top of mind for me. So what they were going through in high school, I, I related to that. And then they took it off of Netflix for a long time and I couldn't watch it. So then I couldn't pick back up with it till I was further into college. And then I started relating more to their college struggles as well, because that's where season four picks off. And now season six is that time of their lives where they're going out on their own, having to pay the bills with with jobs or just deal with more adult responsibilities. The weight of the real world is starting to is starting to crush them and they don't know if they can emotionally handle that. Their mentor figures are becoming more distant now and kind of leaving them to face the world alone. And they, they, they're starting to have to deal with more real problems. And that's where I'm at in my life right now. I'm on my own, have to take on more adult responsibilities. The realities of the world are becoming more apparent to me in life. And I just, you know, I got to learn to deal with it. So season six is also hitting me at the perfect time as well in my life for what I'm going through. Not as intense, obviously, but <laughs> it's just, it's kind of funny how this show is to me. So I, I, I love season six. For what it tried to do, even though it was pretty harsh sometimes. Mm-hmm. And I'm not, I don't love some of the choices they made mm-hmm. for certain characters. I don't like what they did with Spike. That was kind of character assassination, I will say. Uh-oh. And um, yeah, I don't like what Xander did either for later on. And I don't <laughs> like what, uh, yeah, it gets, it gets bad. There's, they're very that's, controversial that's things. Great. Josh Whedon did Firefly, right? Yes. Was that good? Did you watch yeah. it? Oh, yeah. It's uh, great. I mean, it's only that's it's one four, the... it's 14 episodes in a movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Six seasons in a movie. Anyway. Uh... <laughs> yeah, Firefly's, Firefly is fantastic. It's got a very you know, unique I just realized and... now that there's so many strikes, we're still not going to get the community movie for a while. <laughs> Son of a bitch. <laughs> I just realized, like, I believe everyone's schedules were just clearing up, and now there's so many strikes. It's actually really funny to bring up the strike again, because the the stills of the Deadpool 3 came out of yeah. Hugh Jackman, Deadpool in the costume. Deadpool looks a little bit more red in terms of the color. 
Right. Uh, but then like two days after the act, the actors are going on strike and then they've said they've halted production because of it. So it's like, oh, man. we're never seeing this movie or and the Hugh community Jack- movie. And Hugh Jackman's like, I got to stay in shape this whole time. Oh, man. I mean, he'll probably get paid for it. So he doesn't care. Yeah. Anyway, Buffy, it's it's controversial, and mm-hmm. they didn't really put trigger warnings on TV back then. But yeah, if some stuff will trigger you, uh, yeah. if you watch season six today, definitely be warned about that. Mm-hmm. There's Buffy's a lot of stuff one of those about shows, you know, that I'm not too interested in, just in terms of it's just not my thing, like the vampire stuff. But I know it's a phenomenal show, and I wasn't Sarah really Michelle Gellar is a very good actress. She's fantastic. In the, in the yeah. show, really. Uh, although my favorite character is, um, I just got to look up her, Emma Caulfield as uh, Anya. She's my favorite character yeah. in the show. She's so funny. That's good. Every line of hers lands. Mm-hmm. She's just a very, and Anthony Stewart head as Giles. Yeah. Those are I feel my like two I favorite. Know, I feel like I know every twist that happens in Buffy because when I was a kid, I watched Watch Mojo on YouTube. And oh, they yeah. just spoiled everything. <laughs> they just I told you know- everything that happened. I did know a lot of the twists in season six, but it's still like when this show emotionally hits, it hits hard. Yeah. So There's I, one twist that I just saw recently, but I don't want to talk about it because people should watch the show. Yeah. Okay. What's your next? Uh, my next one is I went on a Matt Damon kick recently uh, mm. was Goodwill Hunting. I love this movie just for the whole story behind how Matt Damon and Ben Affleck are, were relatively unknowns at the time. and. They just wrote a movie together. They grew up together and they made probably one of the best movies of the 90s. Gave Robin Williams his Oscar. He's phenomenal in it. It proved that Robin, well, he's a great actor. Everybody knew he was a great actor, but this was the movie that widely proved that he could do very good dramatic acting. Yes. And uh, it's actually a good example of your point where it says comedian actors going into drama is much easier than the other way around. Mm-hmm. And it, it's a lot better ti- timing. And it's just a great story of what do you do with your future when you have this gift of, you know, you, you know you're smarter than everybody else, but the fact that you're so smart <laughs> might be a danger to others. So it's this weird conflict that he has. And it's, uh, this is actually pretty funny. Stellan Skarsgård's in this movie as well. He's, oh, yeah. he's come up twice on this list now. Um, all the scars scars are great. How is one family of actors? They're all phenomenal. Anyway, hmm. in, they're kind of the angel and the devil of Will Hunting. If you talk about because Stalin's uh, scars scars character wants him to go into the mathematics. He wants him to have this great career. Um, but uh, Ron Willen's character wants him to just kind of just ask what he wants to do because, yeah. you know, they bring up these great points of there's this one. <laughs> I mean, it's. It's kind of dark, but Robin Williams brings up the Unabomber as a, an example of of something bad happening with a guy going into mathematics and he was treated poorly by schools. He was actually, the Unabomber was actually the, the actual guy, Ted Sosinski. He was experimented on like with LSD in this university trial. And that's what fucked him up mentally. Um, there's a show about it, uh, about catching the Unabomber. Um, the guy from Avatar's in it. Sam Worthington. Okay. It's a it's actually a really good show. And the guy who plays the Unabomber is um Vision from MCU. Paul Bettany. Paul Bettany. Paul Bettany? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That it's a really good show. I think everybody should watch it. I think it's on Netflix. Anyway. But yeah, Goodwill Hunting, everybody knows it's phenomenal. It's well acted. It's well written. It's really funny. Chemistry between uh Matt Damon and all his friends is really good. 
him and Robert Williams is phenomenal. And the fact that these two kids just wrote this movie, and it's a really good movie, it just says a lot and gives me hope. Yeah, me as well. So my next one is Golden Age. And Mimi Driver is excellent in it too. Yeah, I don't have much to say about Good Will Hunting. It's just the, the thing I remember most was just that one Robin Williams scene when he makes Will break down. Mm-hmm. Just, mm-hmm. just a couple simple words. It's not your fault. I had to do that scene in, at school. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's crazy how impactful it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So my next one, I've been reading a lot of uh, Golden Age Wonder Woman comics. Wonder Those Woman. are weird. <laughs> it's <Yeah>. very... <laughs> Wonder Woman comics were a little strange back then because compared to some of the other ones I'm reading, they actually did more serialized stories. It used to be the books had three or four issues per book and they'd all be standalone stories just like Batman takes on this villain and in this issue he takes on this villain but there's like four stories per book. But the Wonder Woman ones in the Wonder Woman books they were all like they were three standalone stories, but usually they were about one villain and they kind of carried over. So it was like, I don't know how many there there'd be. It was like 40 page stories basically that were split into three chapters, which is kind of weird compared to the other golden age books I've read. Um, the wonder woman books are also very, they're also kind of strange because they deal a lot with, um, well, if I recall, William Moulton Marsden was super into BDSM, so a lot of... Oh. William Moulton Marsden is a very interesting person. If you don't know, some of the, fa- some of the only facts I know about him, here's just some wild things. So there was this, I think he was in love with one of his students, and she, oh God. <laughs> and she basically entered in a polyamorous relationship with him and his wife, so it was like the three of them together, and they were super into BDSM. So that's why Wonder Woman's suit looks like uh, uh, I don't I don't know that's what why you she call. Has a whip. It. Is that why she has a whip or a lasso? Uh, truth. Well, that's something different. But that's why she <laughs> kind of dresses like I don't know what you call them. Like, uh, oh, like, like the, dominatrix. Yeah, like dominate. That's why she yeah. kind of dresses like a dominatrix. So that's what I think I read the suit was inspired by, and that's why basically every issue she gets tied up or chained up or something because in Wonder Woman. Like, the ethos that he was kind of trying to build was bondage and restraint builds character. Because you have to be oh you have to be restrained to push yourself to your limits. William Moulton Marston is also the guy who invented the lie detector. Hence why he gave her the lasso of truth. Yes, I knew that. So, that's been brought up in, like, many sitcoms, I think. Yeah, <laughs> that's what that was about. So, very interesting guy. And he was also incredibly ahead of his time for feminism because, well, he wasn't just a feminist. He actively believed women were the superior sex to men in every way. And he, like, he worshipped women. So that's why Wonder Woman was, A, one of the only female characters to lead a comic book series and, B, one of the first feminist icons in, in fiction. She was, like, Paradise Island was an island full of strong women. She did get, like... You know, she did get captured and bound a lot. Sometimes men could take away her power by chaining the, like, by welding her bracelets together. But, like, her and her holiday girls always found a way out of, oh, yeah, she also teamed up with college girls a lot. They were kind of her sidekicks. It was, 
and then they went to like they don't go to different planets and fight like fairies and different dimensions oh and they also fight Nazis a lot. And um, why do I feel like this writer should get a biopic? It's got a very interesting life. I think he did have a biopic, but I heard it wasn't that accurate. Oh, he did. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was. But I also like it because it was pretty consistent in that mm. he was, I think, the only one who wrote Wonder Woman for like pretty much till he died in the late 40s or early oh. 50s. But that's also the thing is when he died, I heard Silver Age Wonder Woman changed into being a lot more of a this is what women should be in the 1950s. It, like, it totally changed after he died. Yikes. From, and then, of course, Wonder Woman's gone back to that more mm. original progressivist concept. But yeah, the characters are very strong and like they still hold up today. You know, some of the like racism towards Japanese people doesn't hold up. But, you know, it was World War Two. It was these and she worked for the U.S. military. It was a different time. (laughs) This was these were very clearly propaganda books. Yeah. In large part. Give them a pass. (laughs) Well, yeah, but the adventures were like not historically. Don't give them a pass. Like, don't do that now. No, 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 no. Yeah, but in his context, it was a different time. I mean, the book even says this is at the beginning. It always says this is a piece of art written in a time when racism was more common in society, consciously or unconsciously, and this is presented as it was in the understanding. It's historical. Yeah. So they have a little blurb about it in the start. Mm-hmm. But yeah, Wonder Woman, Golden Age. It's always. Weird and entertaining. I enjoy it because it just gets really out there. Usually, cool. usually Wonder like in, usually it's like incels are the villains. It's either like Nazis yep. or incels who are just trying to subjugate women, or Pedro Pascal. Yeah, but this is <laughs> I'm like eighty. Keep up bringing up nineteen eighty four yeah. whenever I can. <laughs> I'm just saying these were stories done eighty years ago. They were so ahead of their time in so many ways. It's crazy. Yeah. What's your next? Uh, my next one is a more recent film. I think 2016 is, uh, the nice guys, Ryan Gosling oh, I stop it. I and, that. uh, I really want to see Oh that. God. Russell Crowe. Russell it's Crow. on Netflix right now. Yeah. It is so funny. It is a phenomenal movie. Ryan Gosling is at his comedic peak here. He is, I just remember two more movies randomly. That I watched recently, so my list is a bit longer now. If we have time, but uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, this movie is so funny. The chemistry between these two, it's cut. It was it's funny because I think this movie is around the time where these comedy led movies were sort of dying off. But yeah. it's just a really well written comedic movie about uh, there's this murder or is this girl who's missing? Uh, well, it starts with a porn actress in the seventies. She gets into a car crash and. It's what is the tying events into this? Another girl goes missing. It's L.A. in the 70s. You know, it's uh, it's around that time. It's actually got. Oh, what is her name? Lizzie in the Spider-Man MCU universe. Uh, Ned's girlfriend in the second movie. She plays the daughter of Ryan Gosling, and she's actually really funny. No, it's only March. Yeah. Angry Rice. Is the actress's name? Yeah, I think so. Um, she's she's really good, and it, it's so funny seeing her so young too. In that, I don't think it was one of her first movies, but it was definitely one of. Uh, she's really really funny. Um, 
also uh the girl in once upon a time uh i think her name in the movie is pussy in once upon a time but she's in mm-hmm. this movie as well um it's it's really funny it's a really funny movie it's kind of this buddy cop movie set in the 70s as well but they're not really cops they're kind of sleazy they're they're pis it's just, it's really fun keith david's in it as well it's just a great 70s vibe that takes itself seriously but not too seriously it allows itself to be funny Oh, that's good. I I always wanted to see this one at the time. I just never got mm-hmm. around to it. Which sucks, so Netflix, so. watch it tonight. So I definitely should see it. My next one is also a period piece: the Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, season one. I just finished this the other week. Which this thing just gets me super hyped to see Rachel Brosnahan as Lois Lane. Mm-hmm. I just watched this season and I'm like, ah, she's perfect. So good. I hundred percent see this woman playing playing Lois in uh, in the next mm. Superman movie. I don't know about uh, that one guy. Who, who's his name? The guy who's playing Superman? Superman? Yeah. I have no idea. I just know he's unknown. Which is tradition, mm-hmm. actually. I mean, most su- Superman... Like, Batman, they always cast a known actor. Superman is basically always an unknown. And personally, yeah. that's how it should be. I think I've got on this rant before, but it's just... There Superman was an amazing... Ami- David, uh, David yeah. Cornsweet. Corn sweat, yeah, or yeah. Corinne sweet. Sure. There, immediately, there was a meme where it's like, "Hey, can we have Henry Cavill?" No, we have Henry Cavill at home. <laughs> <laughs> and they showed a picture of him. It's like that's not nice, but yeah, I think he'll do well. Anyway, marvelous Mrs. Maisel, from what He's I've heard. Sorry, uh, marvelous Mrs. Maisel, from what I've heard, is loosely based on the life of Joan Rivers, or oh. it's inspired, or it's inspired by Joan Rivers in that she was, you know female Jewish comedian in a time when female comedians weren't really a thing or they were, weren't really taken seriously. I mean, personally they still aren't in a lot of cases, but uh, they're still trying to break the glass ceiling. But yeah, like it's kind of based on people like Joan Rivers, but Joan Rivers specifically. So it's basically about this, this housewife named Miriam who she basically leads this idyllic, 1950s life with her husband Joel. They have the couple kids. They live in New York. They're very, they're a very happy couple. Things are going great. And uh, her husband is a big fan of comedy. He wants to be a stand-up comedian. That's his dream. So every night they go to this place, this comedy club, the Gaslight, and uh, he does his stand-up show there. <laughs> Sorry, that's a funny name for a for a club. <laughs> I think it's a, I think it's an actual club, or it was at the time. That's great. So, yeah, he does his stand-up act there, but he bombs basically every night because he sucks. Mm. Anyway, he gets depressed enough. I'm just describing the pilot anyway. Basically, he gets depressed enough that he admits to Miriam that he's been cheating on her with his secretary, and then he just up and leaves her one night. So then she ends up stumbling drunk into the bar and just ranting off the cuff about her husband, and she makes people laugh. And the, the talent manager there, Susie Meyerson, she takes notice of Miriam, who she thought was just this meek housewife who did whatever her husband said, which, to be fair, she was. But Susie sees real potential in this Miriam, uh, Mrs. Maisel. So she kind of takes her under her wing and teaches her how to get into comedy. And all of season one is just, how do we take this housewife with raw talent and turn her into an act people want to see? She goes through all kinds of hurdles on her way 
to being a comedy star. She's got to, you know, first she's got to learn how to perform sober because her first couple acts, she was on whatever. Uh, Then she has to learn to accept bombing in front of an audience. She's got to learn. And this whole time she's keeping this part of her life a secret from her family. So they all wonder where she goes out to at night and her family her family and her husband's family are trying to get her back together with her husband because they're like, ah, oh, you're a divorcee, you're scandalous, you're ruining the family's name. This is, ah, oh, we need you back together with your husband. This separation cannot stand. Yeah, so it's, so there's some family drama in there as well, but it's really funny. Very quick-witted dialogue, which I've heard a lot of people complain, oh yeah, that's not period accurate. People didn't talk about anything that way. This is, like this is inaccurate like yeah maybe not it's a it's a very specific style but it's entertaining sometimes a little grating but it and it's genuinely funny i laugh harder than a lot of actual comedy shows and uh rachel brosnahan is genuinely funny her like the stand-up she does in the show makes me laugh a lot actually so show hits its target pretty well yeah, I haven't seen the show, but I've definitely seen clips, and she is super funny yeah. in it. And I remember that specific actress from, uh, again, I brought up again, but House of Cards, and totally different, but she's a phenomenal actress, so I know that she can do both comedic and dramatic acting, and I yes. think that is necessary for a superhero uh, mm-hmm. show. And I hope she brings some sass to Lewis Lane, and she probably will. I also love her parents on the show, played by Tony Shalhoub and Maren Henkel. They're so funny. Good. Uh, All right, so what's your next one? All right, my next one is the final season of Barry. Uh, Ah. Bill Hader's, I was going to say magnum opus, but it's not not really what it's supposed to be. (laughs) But it's his own written and semi-directed show. He's directed a few episodes, but not all of them. Uh, I think he directed most of the last season, though. Uh, so basically, flashback to season one. It's about this hitman who is tired of being a hitman, and he gets the acting bug bit in him. And it's sort of this... It's played... It's this dark comedy show where... Uh, it's, and it stars Bill Hader as well. But it's just written so well that it feels super grounded, and you j- just accept the premise that it's this hitman who's trying to be an actor... And I think the first season hit so much with me because a lot of the episodes where Barry was in acting school, I was doing the exact same exercises and the exact same practice scenes too. So to me, they were really funny. And then the next few seasons, it gets more dramatic, dramatic as things tend to, because he's a hitman, he's got to kill a few people that comes back to haunt him. And then season four is the, uh, the end, the climax of the entire show i thought it was handled really well i can't really get into what was really good about it and what was uh the entire story there because it's really spoily for the entire show but i recommend everybody watch it i just think it's really well written really well acted and the composition the shots are phenomenal there's just sometimes these beautiful long takes of barry contemplating or just these landscape shots that you see are really well done there's a few dream sequences that are beautiful yet eerie at the same time and the uh other actors in the show are really good as well his um love interest in the show 
I should be more prepared. Sari Goldberg, who plays Sally Reed, is really good. She's a phenomenal actress. I think she's Canadian as well. Don't quote me on that. I think so. Anthony Kerrigan, who plays Noho Hank, so fucking funny. He is hilarious. He's sort of the comedic center of this uh, <laughs> of this show. He is part of the gang that hires Barry to do a lot of hits in L.A. The yes. show's set in L.A., by the way. And Henry Winkler is plays the acting coach. He oh, is yeah. fucking hilarious. He is so funny. It's phenomenal. And it was midway through the show where I realized, oh, my God, that's the Fonz. I never realized <laughs> it until because I've seen Henry Winkler all my life when he was older and old age. But I just didn't make the connection until he did a certain move in this show. I was like, oh, my God, that's Fonzie. I never understood that. And I remember telling my parents that and they were like, really? You didn't know? Because they kind of grew up with Cheers and all that. And, yeah, yeah. Or not Cheers. Um, Happy Days. Happy days. Thank you. Uh, but yeah, I think it's a really well phenomenal written show. I think it's sort of, it's, it's kind of an indie show as well. Not a lot of people talk about it, but the people who have seen it think it's great. I think the ending is, uh, it's not like this grandiose ending, but it's definitely one where you accept it. You're like, yeah, I accept that that would happen to it. Great show. Loved it. Nice. I recommend everybody to watch it. I get around to Barry one day. Watching Bill Hader do dramatic acting, uh, he's really good. He's he's really good. If anybody watched it, Chapter Two, you'll see bits of that in there. But he's yeah, he's phenomenal, and he has great comedic timing as well. Definitely, he's a very funny man. So I read a couple issues of Stanley and Jack Kirby's Fantastic Four, which is legendary in the comic book world. Stanley and Jack Kirby's Fantastic Four is the comic that put Marvel Comics on the map. It's what mm-hmm. saved them from basically irrelevancy in the late 50s, which maybe one day I should do a deep dive on Stanley's history or Jack Kirby. Just Marvel. I know I've t- I think I've talked about this on the show before, so I won't reiterate right now. Suffice it to say this was a very important run in one of the all-time greatest runs in comics. My uncle likes to give me his old trade paperback sometimes, so I, uh, you know, for birthday, Christmas, whatever. So I'm just reading through some of them. It's like halfway through. And in some of these, they find, uh, like, the Silver Surfer is chained up in Doctor Doom's castle, and then they they get rid of him, and then they fight fight Sandman, and then other, like, in um, in the Baxter building, and they, like, Reed gets thrown into a parallel dimension where a new villain comes back like there is some like they're pretty memorable actually um the dialogue is really fun the the family bickering the entire time and just their back and forths are really what sells the book but there's also a lot of healthy character drama in there as well alongside the action like marvel was doing some really interesting things there and uh king kirby's art was exceptional even for the time he's got a very iconic style still recognizable today you know it's a jack kirby book just from the look of it Mm. just iconic all around definitely earns its reputation i read i read a lot of old books obviously i read the golden age stuff the silver age stuff not, not so much the bronze age but i read comics from many different eras and i do see why the marvel stuff in the 60s was, I mean, some people call it the Silver Age, other people call it the Marvel Age, for good reason. They were doing 
very unseen things at the time. And the quality level was there most of the time. Their villains are kind of unmemorable and suck. That was always a problem for them. But their heroes, A tier. I can see why the Fantastic Four was arguably one of, if not the best selling book of that era. So it was like Spider Man, Fantastic Four, X Men. Those were their A list back then. Yeah. And I'm finally reading some of the Fantastic Four now. So now I'm getting what the hype was all about. I wonder, because they have, what, how are they going to do the X Men in the MCU? I wonder how they'll do that. It's probably not going to happen until after Secret Wars, but I don't know. Uh, My next one is Air. Uh, Mm -hmm. Another Matt Damon and uh, Ben Affleck property. Ben Affleck directed this movie, and it's basically just about the movie of how they got Michael Jordan to sign on to Nike. And it has no business being this entertaining. The whole premise is selling a shoe to an up-and-coming athlete. That's the premise of the movie. But it's just so well-directed, well-acted, well-written. Viola Davis playing Michael Jordan's mom. Perfect casting. Because if anybody knows who Michael Jordan's mom is, she was a take-no-shits type of person. She did all the business for him when he was younger. And this is history again, where basically this Michael Jordan... And uh, Mrs. Jordan, I will say. I don't know her by first name. They are the reason that athletes get an incentive on their shoe deals now. I mean, Michael Jordan was one of the most popular athletes to come up. Basically saved Nike from bankruptcy. They weren't doing great in terms of shoe deals. Um, they even make it, they make it a point where, because in the NBA, there was a contract at the time where they had to have a certain amount of white in the shoe. And they even told Michael Jordan, we will pay the fine of having too much color in the shoe for you, just for you to wear it. And look where Nike is now. They are the most popular shoe brand in the world, probably the most popular sports brand in the world. And it just goes to show, it's kind of like, I assume if I watched Blackberry, it'd kind of be the same, not the same premise, but sort no, of the it same. Sounds, it sounds like a, the same thing, except shoes yeah. instead of phones. Mm-hmm. It's like, it's the business I just story. love, yeah. I just love how these gigantic businesses started and how they were they almost weren't (laughs) they almost went bankrupt as well the chemistry between ben affleck and matt damon it's still reminiscent of them 30 years ago ben Mm. affleck is matt damon's boss as uh, matt damon is the sort of shoe scout person or the shoe seller where ben affleck is the head of the shoe um I think the basketball shoe brand of Nike, they had different like branches and they were talking about how Nike at the time, their basket, their money budget for basketball was so much lower. They're mostly a tennis shoe at the time. Yeah. And the way they sell it to my, and what I really love is they never show Michael Jordan's face. They just never okay. do it. It's all, whenever he's on screen, it's always a back shot or behind him, uh, which kind of sucks because. Me and my friends have this stupid joke where we have this one friend who looks a lot like Michael Jordan when he was younger. So, like, why did they cast him? But uh, it's it's a really great movie. It has no business being this entertaining, but just the level of acting on its own. If you're a basketball fan and you're a Michael Jordan fan, you will love this fucking movie. It's really well done. Nice. My next one here is Better Call Saul, season six. Finally finished this show. 
about damn time. So Better Call Saul, I know you haven't seen it. I'm on record as saying it's better than Breaking Bad, in my opinion, which I think counts for a lot for me. <laughs> Don't shake your head at me. I'm not doing nothing. I, was, I had a crank in my neck. <laughs> you can't shake your head at me when you haven't seen it. Breaking Bad fans are so much sticklers that... Because they never gave Better Call Saul a chance, was the thing. I could make this a whole thing about Better Call Saul, but I'm just going to say, they watched the first couple seasons, and yeah, it's a slow burn show. I'll give it that. You come off the tail end of Breaking Bad, one of the best shows of all time, forgetting that it didn't have, you know, breakneck pace start either. It took a couple seasons to get going as well, oh, just yeah, saying. For sure. But you come off of that to Better Call Saul, the prequels, more comedic-centered spinoff about Jimmy McGill, Saul Goodman. You're like, well, what the hell is this about? Give that show a couple years to get going, too. By season three, if you're not locked in, we're not friends anymore. <laughs> but <laughs> it keeps going to the I think season six is like it's it's the peak of this universe for me. This is where everything comes together. This is where. The timelines finally converge into Breaking Bad, and you finally see that final transition point between Jimmy McGill and Saul Goodman, and it's tragic. It's like this entire show is, it plays with the concept of a prequel so well, because you know exactly what's going to happen. You know Jimmy McGill's got to turn into Saul Goodman. And at the beginning, you don't care. He's just this goofy, got, this goofy wannabe lawyer, Jimmy McGill. But by the time he actually turns into Saul Goodman, you don't want him to. You miss Jimmy. You're like, why am I watching this scumbag lawyer now? I, I don't like Saul Goodman. Saul Goodman's an asshole, and he basically killed Jimmy McGill, who was the actual guy I like. Like, it makes it feel like a real tragedy what happens to this guy and how he becomes him. But it's such a great, I, I don't know, like regression. Not really regression because he didn't, like, regress, but. It just, I don't know how to describe it at the moment, but it's just a, it's a downward spiral into becoming a, a, a character like Saul Goodman. But it's not just about Saul. Really, personally, the standout of this show is Rhea Seahorn is Kim Wexler, his main colleague. She's, her acting in this show is phenomenal. phenomenal. She deserved every Emmy she got for this thing. She's she's the real heart of this show because I love her progression as well in that she was just kind of Jimmy's, you know, she's a good stand-up lawyer who's really just trying to do right by people at the start, but Jimmy and her kind of have this con artist thing going on. They like to play cons for fun, but season six finally hits the point where their cons start getting like way too far to the point where they're trying to ruin how are like they're trying to ruin their former boss's reputation entirely just like gaslight the public into thinking he's this awful guy and tear his entire reputation down it starts going a little far so that plot line resolves in a way that had me like <laughs> i don't even know how to describe like it screwed me up bad like i had nightmares about it for days what happened oh, after gosh. like at, at the end of that plot line which I did not see coming at all. Uh, it was just so like, what? what is even happening? How did this plot line end up so mind-blowing? What? Oh, my Lord. Uh, so then there's the mob storyline as well, 
with uh, with Mike and Nacho and uh, and Gus as well. And there's I've seen clips of Nacho. It's really good. Nacho is the Far other Cry thing. Three, anybody? Wink. Yeah. Anyway. Nacho is the other thing about this show that Breaking Bad fans should uh, like. Everyone knows Mike and Gus as well, and they get mm-hmm. really solid arcs as well. Mike finally in season six becomes the the cold, ruthless hitman we know him to be. Because throughout Better Call Saul, he sort of had this streak of empathy for people. He was still cold, but season six is where he finally turns that corner into nope. I don't. I don't care about anybody anymore. That's like that's it. I invested too much into people. And uh, Nacho, his storyline is just getting too deep into the mob and trying to get out uh, just as best he can. Will he make it out? Will he not? He's just. Like he, he's basically the Jesse Pinkman of this show is the best parallel I can find for him where you're like, you don't really root for him at the start, but as it goes by season six, you're like, yeah, Nacho, come on, man. You're just doing, you're just doing you just get out and be at peace with your father and just live your best life, man. You deserve it. And, uh, Tony Dalton is Lalo Salamanca. Mm-hmm. Arguably the best villain in the whole Breaking Bad universe. His performance is mesmerizing. Every moment this guy's on screen, he's the most ruthless monster in Breaking Bad, but he's also the most charming. I love every second this guy's on screen. Yeah. And the uh, the Gene storylines finally start paying off, where you see Saul after the events of Breaking Bad. In his modern timeline, where he's on the run from the law, and you finally see... You finally see the after effects of Breaking Bad, what finally, once and for all, happens to Saul Goodman, and it's it's a good ending, I think. I was left satisfied. It tied everything together. It's, you got to take it as a whole from, like, Breaking Bad Season 1 to 5, El Camino, and Better Call Saul Season 1 to 6. If you take it as, like, 11 seasons of TV and a movie, it's one of the best TV cinematic universes of all time just one of the best stories i've ever seen taken as a whole but i like the better call saw bit of it more personally it just gels with me more i like the con artistry and the lawyers and the lead up to breaking bad more than just seeing this uber successful chemistry teacher basically better call saul is them building the empire that walter white does his best to ruin so it's, it's like it makes Breaking Bad better in hindsight when you see all the work these guys had to put into it because it, it feel you feel their struggle even though you know what happens to yeah. them all you you root for them building this thing mm-hmm. up so Better Call Saul is incredible yeah definitely now the show is wrapped up I will find time to uh to watch it because I am a yeah. Breaking Bad fan um and an El Camino fan I love that movie when that came yeah. out too that was really well directed uh Vince Gilligan He's just one of those guys that can't miss. Yes. Um, a show that I have recently rewatched and having I've took a small break, but I'll probably get back to it soon, is uh, Big Bang Theory. I mm-hmm. kind of just was seeing clips online. And I was like, you know what? I, I need to watch something that's not as serious and just a little bit more fun. And I really I don't really want to watch Friends again, even though I love Friends. <laughs> I'd rather not watch How I Met Your Mother. I'll give Big Bang Theory another try. And... I started watching it, and the first four seasons, I think, are really good. 
Because I think it, it was released around that time where it started to really show that nerd culture isn't something to just, like, it can be made fun of, but it's just, it can be widely acceptable. And I think this show really helped make, quote-unquote, nerd culture acceptable as well, just in the public eye. I think it was the show that made nerd culture mm-hmm. acceptable. To me, nerd culture yeah. was pre-Big Bang Theory and post-Big Bang Theory. There was a yeah. very clear shift. Even, mm-hmm. like... In my, oh, oh, sorry, I'm interrupting you, but like in no, my life, ahead. in my life, the old, like there's a, there's an old guy who works for us at, uh, at the woodlot. Right. And like, he's not into the nerd stuff at all. Right. Mm-hmm. But, uh, like my boss is a little bit, but, uh, like they don't know anything, but when we're talking about it and we've related to the big bang theory, then they, they're like, oh yeah, yeah. Like, uh, like Sheldon <laughs> or whatever. Like mm-hmm. they don't know anything, but they know in relation to the big bang theory. Cause even they're fans of that show. Yeah. So it's just, it's funny how like all of nerd culture for people who aren't into it is just tied to this show now for better and for Mm -hmm. worse, I will say. Yeah. And I, it's funny. I'm only at the fifth season right now because the episodes are just really quick. They're only, they're literally only 20 minutes. Some aren't even 20 minutes. They're a lot of fun to watch. The cast is phenomenal. They're Mm -hmm. just so funny the way it's written. I mean, the chemistry between Sheldon and Leonard is really good, and I like their dynamic, but the chemistry between Sheldon and Penny is so funny. The way they work off each other is so funny, and the way that Penny throws sarcasm at Sheldon is really good, too. And Kaylee Cuoco, she's hilarious. I don't know if she ever won an Emmy or not, but she definitely deserved it. I think she's great. Um, it's starting to get to the point where it stopped being about nerd culture and now it's becoming just a regular sitcom with all the girlfriends again, but the, and I'm not even dissing on the girls that they brought in because they're cast phenomenally as well. I mean, uh, Sheldon's girlfriend is a real life scientist. And so they just basically cast around her and, uh, oh yeah, she's the host now, right? Like full time. Or uh, one of them. For like half the year. Ken Jennings yeah. is host for half the year and she's host for the other half. Oh, I see. Yeah, she's really good. And um, Bernadette is really funny. She's mm-hmm. got this really squeaky voice, but then whenever she gets mad, it's the most funny thing ever. <laughs> so I'm mostly staying watching it for the cast. And I tried watching the whole show years ago. And then when it got to the just normal sitcom stuff, I stopped. But I'm just starting to get into it again. And I really love this cast where... I haven't loved a sitcom cast since Friends because the last sitcom I think I watched before this was How I Met Your Mother and I hated everybody except Barney, which is weird, and um, uh, Jason Siegel's character. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Marshall. Marshall, yeah. Marshall can't do no wrong. Ted is the worst main character in all television. Anyway. But the Big Bang Theory, yeah, it's it, it helped bring nerd culture into everybody's home and be like, Hey, there's a lot of cool shit here. It's, it made it acceptable in real life. And I think it should be put into the sitcom hall of fame. If that's a thing. It is somewhere. Probably. <laughs> I know, yeah, um, Sheldon Cooper, the actor, he's Jim won Parsons. an Emmy. I think he's, yeah, he's won a golden globe as well. I think so. Yeah. Big bang theory is a weird one for me because I've seen scattered episodes over the years enough to know, mm-hmm. The gist, I know who everybody is. I know kind of the running gags and whatever, but I never actually sat down and watched it from start to end. I just yeah. seen a lot of it. And I don't know if I ever will. I'm not that interested in it, but yeah, we'll see. Maybe one day. I think I'll... it's 12 seasons. <laughs> yeah. 
which is insane. Uh, I'm just going to skip ahead on my list and get to this show just because it's kind of a funny tie-in. I once saw a comment. Jan Sheldon? A few, a few, no, a, a few weeks ago. A few weeks ago, I was reading up reviews of this new show that I'm going to talk about here. Uh, I watched Silicon Valley season one. Mm. And, the, and one of the comments I think on Reddit that I read was, this is the show Big Bang Theory thinks it is. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and I thought that comment was very, having seen some of Big Bang Theory, that, that's very accurate to me. The show feels very genuine to nerd culture. It's about a bunch of, it's about a bunch of nerds from Silicon Valley who are working in their own tech startup. And then one of them makes this brilliant invention that could change the way computing's done. And this rich dude gives him some seed money to start his own business. And the plot of season one is basically these guys who know nothing about business have to make a working tech demo for the end of the season and figure out what their business actually does. Because the guy turned, he had two options. He could take $10 million from basically Google in this universe, or he could take 200,000 to start his own business, which could balloon into something crazy, or he could have just walked away from $10 million. So that's the whole season is basically like we turned down $10 million. What are we even doing? And it's just, it's them learning how to be businessmen and building their product and just being socially awkward people getting into weird shenanigans, just bickering in the house together and, (laughs) and just kind (laughs) of experiencing some of the weirdness of LA. Uh, Some of them go on, like insane drug trips. Some of them like have like, there's an episode where like one of them was uh, fighting with children about something. They had one of them deals with, um, they try to get a logo from this guy who tags street walls. And, uh, but he's like, he's known for assault cases, so they don't want to screw him over, but they promised him a lot of money (laughs) to make their logo, but he keeps making garbage logos for them. (laughs) Uh, some of the gags are really clever. They have extended comedy bits. Like it's just, I would describe some, but we're, we're already long on time, but it's, it's a really (laughs) funny show so far. It was only eight episodes, I think for the first season. Yeah. Uh, and because I'm a, I'm a nerd too, and kind of in the tech things. I mean, we had a whole thing about Apple versus Blackberry earlier. I know I knew enough to get by. I'm like, ha, I, I know some of these references. I'm not, I'm not that far behind. So. (laughs) <laughs> that's yeah, great I recommend Silicon Valley season one at least looking forward to more my uh, next movie is a little comedy called Crazy Stupid Love it mm. is I believe 2009 2009 2011 I think around that time yeah. another stat cast Steve Carell Ryan Gosling Emma Stone uh, Julia Louis-Dreyfus uh, <laughs> no that's not her um Phenomenal freaking cat. I got to look it up. <laughs> it's it's a great comedy movie. The first pairing of Emma Stone and Ryan Gosling. And it's about this. It's basically about this one family. And I guess the. um The start of the movie. It's basically the, the husband and the wife of the family. They're getting a divorce. 
and it's both it's basically a middle life crisis story how does steve carell deal with it um julianne moore excuse me not julia lee dreyfus is mm. the wife their chemistry is really good together it's basically uh he's goes to this bar randomly in a few nights and then ryan gosling's character comes over and he helps him quote-unquote get his manhood back and how to All talk right. to women how how to pick up girls again because his wife was the only one he's been with his whole life and it's just a really fun romantic comedy 2011 yes uh, great movie. The youngest starter was actually Joey King when she was like really, really young. I think oh, she was yeah, yeah. probably in her not even tens. Uh, phenomenal movie. If anybody's seen it, it's got one of the greatest accumulation, like accumulation of all the cast, like a third of the way through the movie. There's, it's a great scene between the entire cast. It's this great twist. If nobody knows it, I don't really want to spoil it. Cause it's just a great comedic twist. Uh, Kevin Bacon's even in it. Mm. Yeah, it's just a really fun movie. I think more people should say see it. It's a lot. It's very quotable too. That's another one I always wanted to see, but just never got around to. Yeah, it's all fun. right. So my next one. This is the last comic it's, book. It's on. definitely gonna be in like a DVD bundle of like the Ryan Gosling Emma Stone movies. trilogy. <laughs> well, that yeah. too, but also like Ryan Gosling Emma Stone. It's this Gangster Squad and then La La Land. <laughs> they do work well together. Mm-hmm. So my next one, my last comic book on the list, Golden Age Superman, Jerry Siegel, Joe Schuster, right back to the beginnings here. This one is uh, around 1943, 1944, these stories that I'm reading in here. They, uh, Golden Age Superman is my favorite Golden Age stories that I read. I read, um, I think the only ones I, I read regularly are Batman, Superman, Wonder Woman, but these are my favorite ones because they're, they're the most real. In a way, they feel like the fact that he's a reporter is actually very important. It's mm. like it's half the story. Like Clark Kent using his civilian identity as a reporter to uncover truths in Metropolis and report on them as the fifth estate is just as important as Superman actually taking down the criminals. It's getting to know the information and his journalistic integrity and uncovering things. And Lois Lane as well, her like, her being a really snoopy reporter is what gets them into a lot of trouble in the first place. Cause Clark's usually like, well, I'm going to investigate this as Superman, but I'm just going to act cowardly. So like Lois gets out of here and I can slip away. But Lois is always like, yeah, I sense something's amiss. I'm going to go investigate that for a good story. And that always leads them down the rabbit hole of finding. In this time, there weren't really any super villains for him to fight. He, he wasn't fighting powered villains. It was mostly corrupt businessmen and politicians and racketeers and or sometimes nazis things like that they were more grounded threats which yeah he could beat them super easily but also that was that was the story they tried to outsmart him in a lot of ways they usually let him down a rabbit hole that sometimes threw him in the wrong directions or like there were mysteries for him to investigate and solve. He couldn't just barrel into a room and beat up a bunch of guys if he didn't know what they were doing or where they were. He still needed to figure stuff out. And he wasn't like all powerful back then either. He he could still be hurt on occasion. And like you could slow him down. But yeah, the dynamic between Lois and Clark is always super entertaining. They're like they're back and forth. Oh, she thinks he's like they're kind of a couple, but she thinks he's a coward and he's just kind of 
playing with his secret identity. He's he's kind of always having fun doing what he's doing. It's it's very playful and uplifting stuff. The stories are standalone, but they're really they're really well written. They nearly make me want to become a reporter. I can see why this was the biggest selling comic of its time uh, as well. Just they're, they're, they're very good stories. I think they're the best written stories on the whole. Like I said, some of the other ones like Wonder Woman or Batman, they got weird. They were interesting, but Superman had the best writing of the time mm-hmm. for sure. Like the stories, especially the early stuff from the early thirties. That's great. That's not the stuff I was reading right now. Now it's getting a little bit more outlandish, but good stuff. I nearly like That's Golden good. Age Superman more than modern Superman because he's probably a little bit more active in terms of mm. taking down criminals instead <laughs> of like fighting cosmic threats like Doomsday all the time. It's like he's taking down the local politician down the street who's screwing people over. That's cool. Like, the stories are more grounded in a reality. People can see these are Mm -hmm. villains that you might face in everyday life if you're unlucky. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. I have, like, a few left. How many do you have? (laughs) Five. Five? Okay. I have, like, I've been trying to get through them faster. Yeah, I have three. Okay. Uh, Movie I rewatched recently was Trumbo. Okay. It It is basically the movie Brian Cranston did after Breaking Bad. His first main role, not first main role, but one of his uh, big main roles, the one that got him nominated for an Oscar uh, against probably one of the most stacked years ever. It was against Leo. It was against uh, for The Revenant and then that whole category. I don't want to go into it. But basically what Trumbo is, is this movie about Dalton Trumbo, this uh, writer in the 1950s who was blacklisted from Hollywood along with the Hollywood Ten who are a bunch of writers who were in Hollywood. And the reason they were blacklisted is because they were members of the Communist Party. Uh, This was around the time it was during the Red Scare. Um, People thought just because you were part of the party and you had these thoughts that just immediately made you a Soviet spy. You know, American history. Uh, The blacklist is very real. It just goes to show how Trumbo dealt with the blacklist and how he sort of undermined it and... Through him, not alone, but almost through him, he was able to sort of destroy it all the way up to because he's written some he's won two Oscars and they talk about how he wrote Roman Holiday under a different name. And he then he wrote. um, Oh, uh, the bowl movie. Oh, my God. I just watched this movie, but Raging Bull, uh, not Raging Bull. I wish. But um, Trumbo. Oh God! Uh, da, 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 da. The brave one—that's what it was. Hmm. The brave wrote that one as well, and then the brave one—that's when that was a little bit later. But that's the one where the rumors started to circulate. He was the one writing that movie, and then um, he kind of came out as he was writing a movie for Kirk Douglas, a little film called Spartacus, hmm. and that movie when it got released was basically the end of the blacklist and said, Hey, the blacklist is kind of a joke, but then Brian Cranston does this big speech sort of near the end, how the blacklist was never a joke. People actually lost their jobs, lost their homes. Some people actually committed suicide because of it, because they couldn't work 
because people thought they were Russian spies. And it just goes, it's a great piece of cinema history, but also American history. I think it's written really well. It's acted very well. You kind of forget it's Brian Cranston almost five minutes into the film. He definitely plays a character in this. Mm -hmm. It's really well done. I think everybody should watch it. Sounds good, for sure. I should give it a shot. So my next one is uh, is another Superman property, is Supergirl Season 6 from the CW. So finally finished this show. Took me long enough. I started the show when it first began back in, oh, 2015-ish. I kept up with it for a while, and then Season 3 pissed me off enough that I stopped watching, and then I caved and started again. Uh, just in time to catch season four, which is, I think, objectively the best season. Uh, and then season five and six took a downturn again. Season six was actually really disappointing, which is sad <laughs> because it was the last one. And I thought they'd at least pick it up by in, in time for the ending, but it's like, no, no, they just kind of coasted right to the end. And it wasn't that entertaining. It was just this really generic plot line about getting a bunch of MacGuffins together to stop the end of the world and I will say, okay what saves this show though oh yeah and then like one of the characters who was just normal the entire time gets superpowers at the end for some reason right like why why would you go the whole show just to give them powers right now it makes and like and they were only powers that were convenient when the plot needed them to be it's like oh wow this exact set of powers in like magic is what we need to defeat this particular threat at this particular moment. Like, ah, it was all so contrived and pissed me off because <laughs> they didn't need it. <laughs> they did not need those powers. And uh, they, like certain plot lines, like certain characters just became entirely useless. Like her entire job as a reporter. Like I said, I love when the Golden Age Superman made the report being a reporter important. By season six, her Kara being a reporter doesn't matter anymore. She doesn't, she doesn't even care. Like, that kind of becomes a plot point later in the show when she just, like, she admits she doesn't care anymore. Mm-hmm. She wants to focus on being Supergirl more. Like, fine. But then, like, the beginning set an interesting setup that they never really went on with. Like, Kara should have had PTSD from what happened to her at the beginning, but they never explored it after the fact. And I was reading on the Reddit forums, people are like, well, why, why didn't they? And I'm like, no, they, yeah, they should have. They really should have. That would have made more interesting story because she was just so focused on stopping the villain. It never was interesting. Um, nobody really got anything good to do. It just kind of. But the actors were. The actors. Were, <laughs> no, the actors were always like. Say what you will about these CW shows, but I always think the actors. Oh, the actors are, are phenomenal. Yeah, are are great in their roles. My favorite mm-hmm. is uh, Jesse Rath as Brainiac Five. Fantastic performance by him. Brainiac 5. There's five Brainiacs? Brainiac 5 is the one, like, is the descendant of Brainiac from the Legion of Superheroes in the 31st century. Right. Okay. He's a time, he time travels back to the present. Ah, as you do. He's he's a descendant <laughs> of Brainiac. Uh, gotcha. But yeah, he's the best. He's the best part about this show. I love Brainiac 5. Melissa Benoist. Iconic. As Kara, I think I think it's fair to say she's iconic by this point. She's incredible in her role. Just wish the material served her better. She gets a weird ending, which I wasn't entirely satisfied with. 
it was like it was clearly setting up for something different and they didn't go that way and they went with the safest ending possible and you know i'm just going to save you some headache the entire show basically queer baits you up to the like right oh, no. to the very <laughs> end that she's going to get together with her best friend and like like Cara Danvers like or, or in the comic she's like she's she's not bisexual or a lesbian and usually i don't go for changing characters in in their adaptations like just like yeah like supergirl has tons of queer characters so why would you need to change kara but i digress because the way they were setting it up actually made me like okay well this would actually be pretty organic and make sense if they went this way and then they didn't even though everything in the show like and i didn't care when i read like oh they're queer baiting us i'm like i don't care like what are you like what are you yeah. talking about? This isn't this is the story they're doing. You're just looking for something that's not there. And then I started noticing it. Mm-hmm. Like were they they actively were doing scenes that were like, yeah. "Oh, okay. I definitely see you you want us to think this is a thing and then it never became a thing because they just cowered it out at the last second." And I'm like, "Okay. I'm never a fan of that. I think it's worse than when there's like a forced uh non-hetero uh couple." I think queer yeah. baiting is much worse when they do that because, I mean, six seasons you build up all the relationship. Yeah, yeah, it was it was definitely there. And like I said, I I kind of I didn't really care for the longest time because I'm like, well, that's not who Car mm. is. Like, I'll be more annoyed if they change her from the source material at this point. And then you saw it. <laughs> yeah, but then by the end, I'm like, okay, fine, I see it. I'm kind of on board with it, and I'm a little upset now. Mm. Which is even more annoying because Supergirl was all like, it's one of the most progressive LGBT shows I know. Hmm. Like, it's the show that single handedly kind of made me understand and sympathize with transgender people, which I never right. really that's cool understood before the show. I was just like, yeah, this is a thing. I don't really get it. But this is a show that had the first one of the first big transgender characters on TV. And it also has, like with her sister, Alex, it's also one of the best coming out stories on TV where she discovers her sexuality in season two. And like, like that show is one of the best representations of like LGBTQ2 plus issues I've ever seen. So the fact that they cowered it out at the end was like, really? Yeah, it was just, yeah, anyway. Yeah, I don't, uh, not really a CW fan of that universe, but I love Supergirl, so I watch her in anything. I went on about that specific issue a little too long for, like, for the the context, (laughs) I mean to put it in. My point is just a lot of it was, a lot of the season was just disappointing. I'm just harping on that one just to warn people who haven't seen it. Uh, no, it doesn't happen. Supercorp doesn't happen. That's the ship name. I love Kara, though. She's a great character. Yeah. She's great in Injustice. I hope she's great in the James Gunn movie, which I think Brainiac is going to be the villain in that. Right? Maybe. I think. I don't know. That'd, that'd be I nice. Hope. I kind of hope not. It's a little early on, but that'd be cool. Yeah. Uh, also in the one movie, Batman and Superman Apocalypse, she's in that as well. The yeah. animated one. I've seen that one. DC animated. Beautiful. Underrated. <laughs> underrated franchise. Um, my next film is a uh, is another classic. I think 90s or maybe early 2000s. Uh, Training Day. Oh, it's early 2000s. Really? Um, maybe. I don't know. Hold on. I think I think that's 90s. 
Give me a second. It might be 90s. Training. Day. It's like 1992. 2001. Wow. Really? Yeah. Crazy. Uh, but yeah, Denzel Washington, Ethan Hawke. Phenomenal. Phenomenal movie. It's a story about a police officer going on his first day on the job with a veteran detective, Denzel Washington, who is kind of who is a very crooked cop as well, who tries to show him the mean streets of L.A. and how things are really done. And it just takes this uh, young cop, Ethan Hawke, who is very young in this movie. It's crazy to see how young he is. Uh, he's not like a child, but it's just, yeah. you know, we know Ethan Aka is a little bit older now and in our age, but he was so young in this. And just just shows, it's a lot of different twists and turns in this movie. It's really well directed. Um, I think David Ayer did this movie, or he wrote this movie. Okay. And, um, but Denzel Washington is just a scene stealer in this. There's just so many moments in this movie where I was like, fuck, that's so good. Just the way he acts it. And you can tell it's Denzel Washington who is just this phenomenal actor, but you just believe that it's this certain character. He just brings this sort of gravitas and, um, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? He just oozes charisma, just confidence and charisma. That's what it was. And it's just, it's a really fun movie. It's a great crime thriller as well. It gets dark a little bit, but it's also got a great climax. Of course, it's got the big speech at the end. It's like, I'm putting case all you bitches. It's really, it's a fun thriller movie for me. I It's really, it's awesome. There's also a few cameos by a few LA rappers as well around that time. Because, mm. you know, late 90s, early 2000s. Yeah. Uh, Snoop Dogg's one of them, I think. Dre, Dr. Dre's in it as well. Yeah, Dr. Dre's in it as well, which was really surprising at the time uh, when I watched it for the first time. But even Mendes is in it as well. It's really fun, uh, like, crime throw. And this was, again, around the time where Hollywood could just make whatever they want, but this wasn't, like, a DVD sale movie. This was just a really good fucking movie. It's the movie that got Denzel his second Oscar after Glory. Cool. I think I saw Training Day once when I was really little, so I don't remember a lot about it. Oh gosh, I, I should give it. It up. also has Stick from the MCU. He plays the old guy uh, in that house. I was like, "Fuck that I, Stick!" I should give it a rewatch. Mm-hmm. Assuming it's even the movie I'm thinking about that I saw. No, you are. Yeah, I, I don't probably. I I, I, I you really know. enjoy I just, it. I have like images in my mind, but I don't know if they're real or mm-hmm. stuff I remember remembering. Sometimes memory is weird that way. Terry Crews, I think this is Terry, one of Terry Crews' first ever movie, oh. but he's not really a character. He's co- sort of like a background character, and he's got, like, one line, but he's, you can see, like, here, here's the start of his career, which is really awesome to see. Terry Crews is underrated. He's so funny. He's this gigantic hulking man, yeah. but he's just hilarious. Best I've ever seen him in was Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Yeah, that's a great, great show. Nine-Nine. I need to watch that. Yeah. Uh, so my next one is... I'm working through Chuck season two right now. Mm. Zachary Levi is fantastic in it. It's a fun premise. You don't know what Chuck's about. Basically, he's just, he's this, um, he basically works at Best Buy or like the Geek Squad equivalent, the Nerd Herd. And uh, he's basically, so his best friend in former college roommate who screwed him over back in college, got him kicked out of Stanford. He, uh, he ended up in the CIA and he sent Chuck this file of all this CIA secrets called the intersect. 
And Chuck's got like an exceptional photographic memory. So Chuck just basically downloads this whole tape and now he's got all the CIA secrets in his head. So now the CIA and the NSA both use him as a living asset to go on missions and identify people. And like whenever he sees people, he kind of gets flashes in his brain that activate his photographic memory. And he's like, oh, I know exactly who you are or what this weapon is. And then it's kind of him slowly growing into a spy with his mentors. But he's got to put up this cover. He's got to work at the Buy More still, which is like, you know, just a tech shop every day. And uh, his best friends always get into these. It's kind of this weird tonal shift because half the show is about these super serious spy missions that could like, oh, end of the world, mass murder. Things could like really go bad. And then the other half of it is like his friends screwing around at their boring day job. (laughs) (laughs) Just like completely ridiculous B plots. And a lot of times they'll tie in in the end for like this weird dramedy mix of a of finales where they're like it's really funny but also serious at the same time how they end up blending in sometimes but uh yeah the actors are all really good in it uh, i think the best actor on the show is yvonne strahovski is agent sarah walker she's the standout to me but like adam baldwin's also fantastic is casey he's uh he's one of the main guys in firefly you were talking about firefly earlier oh. So uh, this is his other big show from the 2000s. Yeah, yeah so Chuck is... Uh, yeah, so Chuck is it's really good. Season two, I think, is better than season one. It knows a little bit That's more good. what it wants to be. It's more confident. The plots are getting a little more out of left field. They're just... They're more interesting. It's having more fun with the premise. I enjoy Chuck. That's it's sometimes good. a little goofy for its own good. Yeah, and it's got I just that, know this is Zachary Levi's big break. I, I yeah. just know that that's what this show is. And it definitely over-sexualizes the girls on the show, but it also is like one of those 2000s things where like it people... It was a never, different time. Yeah, where like people <laughs> wouldn't have thought twice back then, yeah. but watching it again with a like a, with a modern lens, it's like, oh yes, this, this, the male gaze is very strong on this show. Mm. I mean, yeah, it's kind of like... <laughs> it's one of those things where even... Uh, like The Witcher, where the first season tried a little bit too much to be like Game of Thrones with the yeah a lot of nudity and over sex stuff, and they now back. you barely see it, <laughs> yeah, because people are like, yeah, we don't really want to see that much nowadays, yeah. But yeah, Chuck is Chuck is still good. It's just a little outdated in some respects, like that. But yeah, oh well, it's a different time, people. <laughs> but it's still it's still enjoyable. The plots are good, yeah. Okay, so for my final two, I'll just bundle them together. Um, just randomly, because I was listening to a podcast from the Try Guys, they talked about they're doing they were doing like a Rachel McAdams month. So back to back, I watched Mean Girls and The Notebook. Don't know why, I just did. Love Mean Girls. I think it's one of those classics, two thousands comedy. Lindsay Lohan, Rachel McAdams, really fun, super quotable. I mean, every other line is a quote. Like, just thinking, like, she doesn't even go here. She's one of, the, like, just <laughs> naming some of the top of my head. It's like, on Wednesdays, we were at Pink. It's just, yeah, it's one of those definitely made for, like, younger, uh, more probably more feminine people. But I think everybody can enjoy this movie. It's just a really fun, 
movie to watch. It was peak Lindsay Lohan. Uh, it's so funny that Rachel McAdams, it's really funny because the Mean Girls and Notebook, she, uh, Rachel McAdams was filming both of them at the same time. So that's why really? she's wearing a blonde wig in Mean Girls, which is I, a fact I didn't know till recently. Huh. Uh, and then the Notebook, I was like, yeah, I'll give this a rewatch. I watched it with an ex-girlfriend over 10 years ago and I thought, yeah, it was fun. But let me just watch it on my own now. And the chemistry between Ryan Gosling and Rachel McAdams is so freaking good that it's just one of those romantic comedies or classic love stories that you're just like, yeah, this was, this is a nice movie. Just one, I just had, had to watch a few movies that were more of a good time. Uh, I usually Something watch like, movies that are more, yeah. that are more like dreadful or <laughs> a little yeah. bit more serious in tone. So I was just like, I just want to have a good time. Watch this movie. Made me feel good. Didn't make me feel single at all, but that's okay. Uh, <laughs> great movies. I, I- I actually haven't seen The Notebook, but I enjoy Mean Girls. Yeah. The Notebook's another one I gotta... And none for Gretchen Wieners. Bye. (laughs) Yeah. So my next one, I've been watching um, Strange New Worlds Season 2, another Star Trek show. Uh, When I go home to visit with my family, this is the show we watch, so I'm pretty behind on it right now. There's like four or five episodes out right now. I've only seen the first two. I love the first season. So refreshing to me after the franchise sucking for so long. Season two, I'm a little less impressed by. The sheen's worn off a bit, just from the first two episodes. Maybe it gets better. I don't know. And I know the second episode was really well lauded. I didn't, I didn't really care for it as much as I wanted to. I'm like, it's okay, but it was so on the nose with the issue it was presenting. And I know Star Trek can be that way sometimes, but I'm like, eh, I wish there was something a bit more subtle or there were more repercussions to kind of counteract. Like, you knew the ending of the story already. It was it was pretty foregone how it was gonna go. So it's like, well, maybe there'll be twists throughout it to keep it more interesting going forward. No, no, it goes exactly how you think it's gonna go and the subject matter is not that original either so it's just and then the first one there was no Anson Mount that was the big problem Mm. he's he's the glue that holds the show together Captain Pike is one of the best leaders I've ever seen on television like Captain Picard is my favorite and has been like he's a role model of mine as like he's one of my favorite characters of all time and then I watch Captain Pike in Strange New Worlds having known Captain Pike throughout the franchise but Anson Mount's Captain Pike is like, I think, instantly iconic when I saw him in the last couple of years. He's just, he's one of the, he's got this perfect leadership style of, he trusts his crew to know what they're doing, but he'll be firm when necessary. He's got this very easygoing thing, makes everybody feel relaxed around him, keeps the vibe light. He's just, he knows how to bring in, out the best in people. And, but he's got a very strong moral center as well. He's just like a super chill guy, but also really good at his job. And I just, I love watching this guy work. So, and he's got great hair. Everyone jokes about that on the internet. But uh, yeah, so I was disappointed to not see him as much in episode one or two. I'm missing Pike this year. Uh, <laughs> but hopefully there's more in, more of him in the next few episodes. Anyway, um, so you said you're done? Yeah, I'm out. 
Okay, uh, so my next one, I'm still chipping away through Assassin's Creed Origins. Last time I talked about it, I said I was a little bit mixed on it. I'm, I'm getting a lot more happy with this game the more I play it. I'm going to different areas of Egypt now. I finally climbed the pyramids. I've gone tomb diving into the Great Pyramids at this point. He's Bayek's traveled through the desert. I've been with him on the sea, riding my camel throughout Egypt, assassinating Templars, or I don't know what they, Order of the Ancients is what they call them in this one. Bayek is such a great character because even though he comes from a very tragic background, he still feels like a human being in that when he's talking to old friends or people he runs into, he can still... Like, he's still a normal guy who can have light conversations and laugh with people, and he doesn't let his tragedy... It defines his objectives and the whole story, but not his whole character. He can, He's like, he's a multifaceted, three-dimensional character who I just... like. He's one of my favorite protagonists in any Assassin's Creed game. He's just... He's well-voice acted, well-portrayed, absolute unit as well. <laughs> he's a really big guy. <laughs> moves very fast as well. The combat is very fun. I'm getting this giant uh this giant legendary weapon that's just like swinging around your shoulders and it's like a giant mallet thing nearly which uh it's slow but it's fun to play with. I used to do like the really quick uh like the really quick swords that were like two two short swords right. basically, but I couldn't carry a shield with those. So now it's heavy weapon and shield. And, uh, the, yeah, so the combat's fun. The stealth is really fun, too. I love trying to play objectives different ways. As I get more gadgets, it gets more... The play styles open up to me. The The skill tree is good, too. I, I, I like picking different functions. Right now, I'm going more into the... Um, into the, the tools section of it. Um, the hunting and crafting system may seem like a bit of a slog, but it's actually pretty fun. Um, I think the trick to this game and what made me feel good about it is that you can't just do every objective as they come to you. You got to do some stuff as it comes to you and some stuff you got to wait. Like the enemy camps, don't do those as you're going through because usually there's quest missions that'll lead you back to the enemy camps anyway. So you got to do them all over again. It sucks. But it's like, if you see a question mark on the map, sure, take it as you're passing by. Why not? Just get it as you're going. Other stuff like the camps, wait it out. You kind of learn what the game wants you to do. So once you start playing it more, yeah, you know, I'll see the world as it comes to me instead of I'm going to go on the map and get every single thing first before playing the plot, which is how I was doing it. Makes it a bit of a slog. Oh, God. (laughs) So now that I'm playing it a little differently, it feels more organic, starting to come together. And I got a long ways to go on the story, even though I'm massively over-leveled for it now. But I digress. The Is that the best, though, fun. where it's like, it's it's a meme, too, where it's like, me, after beating every side quest, the first boss. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> You're just this hulking giant. <laughs> <laughs> That's how I'm feeling right now. But oh, uh, What's a game where I felt like that? Oh, my God. I think I was, like, way too overpowered. Shit, I can't even remember. Oh, I think it was, I, oh, it was God of War. That's what it was. I was, um, I did like all the side quests and I went up to a boss. I was like, ooh, <laughs> I'm like, I'm way too overpowered for this. 
yeah, so and side quests are even fun as well. Uh, yeah, Assassin's Creed Origins. I'm I'll I'll update you on the next leisure list probably. It'll take me a while. And the last one on my list. Next game will be God of War, two. No, Joe. (laughs) I think that's the one after. Please, I I have a list. I have a list of stuff in a specific order to get through. For a specific reason. Your name in the group chat was meant to be a joke, but now it's reality. It was meant to be a joke. I didn't think it was a joke. I think everyone (laughs) knew how it was. You know. (laughs) So my 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 last one here is uh, Simpsons season nine. Which I think I also mentioned on the last one. I'm still getting through it. And I think I did mention before that Simpsons fans agree season nine is where the show started its decline in quality. And having gotten most of the way through season nine, I can agree. Yeah. Yeah, it did. And I don't think that's just my mental state playing a part. I realized pretty early on oh okay i see where it's changing homer is definitely more of a dick now the the plots are getting a lot more out of left field without really contributing to anything the emotion of the show used to be a lot more you used to feel for the characters more or there was a more of a an emotional core to it about the family now it's just kind of silly one-off stuff that has no consequence which is kind of funny and like and the joke ratio is also way lower too. There's way less jokes that are making me laugh out loud. Simpsons season like 1 through 8, I'd laugh out loud like every other sentence. It's so funny. It's my favorite comedy sh- it's one of my favorite comedy shows of all time the first 8 seasons. Season 9 is like it still makes me laugh a lot, mind you, but I definitely see the ratio declining. Updates will follow. So, that's my leisure isn't list. There like, isn't it like 30 seasons? 33, you know, I think. Oh, God. <laughs> oh God. I don't know how far I'm going to get. I Originally, I'm like, eh, I'll just get to season like 10. Now I might go all the way. I don't know, because I'm kind of just bouncing this back and forth with other things. That's how I get through so many things. I just I bounce back and forth a lot. Mm-hmm. Anyway, this episode will be fun to edit. <sighs> oh, gosh, yeah. This is a full-length um, James Cameron movie. <laughs> this is easily the longest episode of Close-Up yet, so thank you to everybody who stuck around this long. We did it. We did it, everybody. We made it through. <laughs> Next year, we'll go for the four-hour Zack Snyder special. Four and a half. We'll do chapters as well. <laughs> No, if we ever do a deep dive on Zack Snyder, it needs to be four hours. Oh, God. And we would have to do his whole career. We would yes. have to do, like, 300 and Watchmen and, yeah, and defend I know we, Watchmen a little bit. We talked about doing uh, a Nolan deep dive. I don't know how long that one's going to be, but the Zack Snyder one's got to be four hours. It's going it, to... The Christopher Nolan, we don't know about the length, but it's just going to be overly loud. <laughs> yeah. Like in Tenet. <laughs> we turn the gain all the way up. <laughs> that's that's good maybe just for the Uh, opening oh god just destroy our listeners ears anyway you're welcome okay well um what do we do now we just close out (laughs) and just end just sleep if you want to know what the list is rewatch the episode anyway (laughs) you can find me at ryan walker official on youtube tiktok and instagram i'll do a recap of mine just to be nice 
All right. <laughs> All right. I got uh, Mission Impossible, End of Tom King, Batman, Blackberry, Secret Invasion, The Witcher, Superman, just before his title split off with John Kent, uh, Chernobyl, Grant Morrison, Green Lantern, Buffy, Season 6, Golden Age, Wonder Woman, Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, Season 1, Bit of Stan Lee and Jack Kirby, Fantastic Four, Better Call Saul, Season 6, Silicon Valley, Season 1, Golden Age Superman, Supergirl, Season 6, Chuck, Season 2, still going, Strange New World, Season 2, still going, Assassin's Creed Origins, still going, and Simpsons, Season 9. I guess I'll go through my list. Yeah. Banshees of Inner Sheeran, Jedi Survivor, Daredevil slash NCU, and MCU. <laughs> <laughs> Many Saints of Newark, Rounders, Ocean's Eleven and Twelve, Goodwill Hunting, The Nice Guys, Barry Season Four, Air, Big Bang Theory Seasons One through Four, Crazy Stupid Love, Trumbo, Training Day, Mean Girls, and The Notebook. See, you have such a variety of things. Most of mine are like variations on the Superman mythos. Yeah, <laughs> like at least a third of them. Well, it's been a bit. Okay, it's yeah. our last list. Tells you what I've been into lately. You can find me on Instagram, TikTok, and Facebook at Thought Play Media. Also, check out the Close Up with Ryan and Joe Facebook page for latest updates on the show. If you listen to us on audio, check out our YouTube channel. And if you're on YouTube, find us anywhere you get your favorite podcasts. We hope to see you on the next Close Up with Ryan and Joe, where we review Oppenheimer. Probably not Barbie quite yet, although I have half a mind just to see Barbie instead on Thursday, just to be like, you know what? We Do you know that. people are doing a double feature? People are on purpose doing double features, doing Barbie and Oppenheimer. I might just if the timing allows. We'll see. My opinion is you have to do Barbie first because Oppenheimer is said to be like a three-hour movie, and I just think tonally you can't watch another movie after that. I think I need to do Barbie second because I like to, I like to make myself feel better after a three-hour depressing. Kind of thing. What with you and always standing out? Just go with the flow once. <laughs> I, I gotta I gotta do the uplifting <laughs> after the tragic. I can't just leave on the tragic or I'll go to sleep depressed. Just watch Velma again. <sighs> Joke. Anyway. Literally, Velma is what got us through Chernobyl. We stopped watching Chernobyl <laughs> because it was too depressing. <sighs> <laughs> this is my this right. is my whatever, my whatever. Velma's not as bad as people's. I'm not going through this again. Stop. (laughs) Close us out. Till next time. Take care.